Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 217. So glad you could join me. It's a special night on the eve of Halloween. We're going to have an especially spooky episode with some uh, creepy open lines coming up at the end. If you have a scary poem and would like to share, um, you know, usually we do the prompt poems at the open lines, but uh, we'll have that, which is a poem based on fear. But if you have any poems at all that relate to uh, Halloween or scariness or spookiness or creepiness or anything you want to share, do jump in the open lines uh, at the second half of the show. We'll be giving out the Zoom link then. Uh, today's guest is Christina Callery, who is the host of a paranormal podcast in addition to being a poet. So it'll be really fun to talk to her in just a little bit. But right now, we'd like to start out with our um, uh, opening poem, which is from the news. And uh, this week, we have Catherine Hagopian Barry here to uh, talk about uh, maybe Lewiston. Uh, so, uh, hey, Catherine, how are you doing? Hi. Thanks, Tim. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I mean, of course, as it so often is for Poets Respond, it's unpleasant circumstances because it's a <laughs> it's a bad story that took place very nearby you. I'm sure most people are familiar with the, the mass shooting and what happened um, in Maine over the week. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about how you found out about the story and how it affected your life before we share the poem? Um, so one of the really, I guess, most startling things about this is that the poem is really quite accurate. My family and I were in the Auburn Travel Center about an hour and a half before it happened, mm -hmm. and we didn't know it. Um, we passed some emergency vehicles. We were heading north, going south, and didn't really understand what was going on and really only found out that night. And um, our home is Bridgeton, which is about an hour outside of Lewiston. So to be that close, we were in the sister city, we were in the Auburn half. It felt like there was a, there had to have been a reason why I was that close. And when the poem started to arrive, that felt like a reason mm -hmm. that maybe the story that the poem had to tell was important enough. And I was able to, to be there to tell it. It feels like a, like a somber privilege, right. Yeah. To be able to tell it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, you know, years ago, we published uh, a poem by Molly Fisk called Violence Fractal about one, I think it might have been after the Las Vegas shooting, maybe. And just the idea that as these things happen over and over again, they get closer and closer to each of us individually or someone we love. And that sort of you feel that when it's, you know, Maine is somewhere you think of as not a thing where like not much happens. <laughs> and uh, to have something like this happen, like so close to you. Uh, must be very frightening. Do you, how did you um, find out a way to enter the poem? I mean, that's always the difficult thing. It's really easy to write sort of, um, you know, political polemic type poems for Poets Respond and things like that. Uh, but it's really hard to access a poem in a way that, that's not just preaching to the choir, that's, that's engaging with it in an actual, you know, creative poetic way that's like digging into, you know, what's actually going on in your deeper feelings and the psychology surrounding it and all that. How did you find a way to do that? With a poem where, you know, there's been so many poems written, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands about mass shootings. Um, how did you find a way to enter this in a unique way? You know, part of that, I think, is listening to how the poem decides to start arriving. For me, the first moment I got an inkling there was a poem there was when I was looking out my window. And I just kept noticing the leaves on the trees, like that detail ends up in the poem at the very end. And how they were the color of the track suit that the suspect was wearing in the photograph. It was like all I could see as I was in the car coming home once I knew was either 
being afraid and frightened and like looking for danger Mm -hmm. or things that reminded me of danger and the pervasiveness of danger and how it can color everything that surrounds you was my way in. Yeah. Well, you did a great job um, of writing it. Let's hear the poem now. Uh, It's maybe Lewiston whenever you're ready. Maybe Lewiston. Maybe we will see Katahdin. We tell our children, maybe we will see a moose pulling over at the Lewiston Travel Center, trucks at the tagging station, hunting season just beginning, death like a warm meal, death like a family reunion, death like a game. We always take precautions hiking, blaze orange hats in the back of the car. Once a woman weeding her garden was mistaken for a deer, death like a stray bullet, death like a mistake. Inside the Circle K, everyone is grabbing whoopie pies and hot slices. My son wants a Halloween skull. We tell him there will be plenty of time for souvenirs. Death like a pirate, death like a clown. Heading north, the road is empty. Ambulance screaming in the other direction. Police cars, helicopter searchlight, desperate circling. What's happening? I wonder. Someone is lost. My husband answers. Death like a whisper. Death like a broken mirror. Death like a Passover prayer. We are too late to seek a Totten. Past the turnoff scenic view, we keep right on driving. I imagine a moose behind the dark trees watching, a sign to stay grounded. Death like a book gently closing. Death like a leaf softening the ground. We find out that night. First thing in the morning, detouring past Lewiston, I keep searching the woods for meaning. Amber leaves a tracksuit, frost a car of interest, shadow a man with a gun. Death in the passenger seat, death on manhunt, death still at large, death on the run. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It's a beautiful poem, really well done. Look at something really difficult that we all have to in this world. That death like a leaf softening the ground is such a beautiful line, too. Uh, that was one of the things that sold it for me. It's almost a poem in and of itself. Thanks so much for being here, Catherine, and sharing that. And, and so glad that, that the guy was caught and it's, it's over now. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Yeah, that was uh, Catherine Hagopian-Berry with Maybe Lewiston, this week's Poet on Poets Respond. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Christina Callery. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I said, today's guest... Uh, is Christina Callery. Christina is the author of Adult Night at Skate World. We got to publish the title poem of that um, way back in, I don't know, when it was, 2008, 2009, something like that. It's a wonderful book. She's also the co-host of the Shadowlands Paranormal Podcast. 
So a uh, really fun guest to have the night before Halloween. She, they've done around, I think, 80 episodes looking at all sorts of paranormal and creepy and spooky stuff. Uh, it's going to be really fun talking to her about that and her book. Her, her poetry has appeared all over the place, too. The Collages, Gargoyle, Failbetter, uh, Mudlark, other places like that. Um, uh, she's a graduate of the University of Michigan and has served as submissions editor for Absent, the Journal of World Literature. Um, she currently lives in Detroit. And here she is, Christina Callery. Hey, Christina, how you doing? Hey, hey, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited and, and, and really honored to be here tonight. Yeah, well, so glad to have you here. It's the first time I've um, had a, a, guest, a host of another podcast on <laughs> the show. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, how it's going to feel be on the other side of the camera or other side of the yeah. uh, the aisle. Um, I feel a little naked without my heads, my headphones and my mic. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, why don't we start out with uh, the first poem, uh, which is the title okay. poem that we published. And to correct the record, it was uh, 2005. So even older wow. than I thought. Way back. It's like a, an OG poem for me. It is very meaningful, uh, not only because it got published in one of my favorite journals ever, Rattle, but also because I feel like this poem kind of marked uh, a point in time for me as a writer where I, I feel like I found my voice in a lot of ways. Um, I was in a writing group back then with a friend of mine who's an amazing poet, Robert Fanning. And um, he actually helped me workshop this one uh, until I got it to the point where I felt like I was ready and you guys picked it up and, and, and uh, I'm so grateful. Adult Night at Skate World. You'd think it was an eighth grade dance the way we stand shyly eyeing each other when the first slow notes sound for couples skate. A 50-ish man in a striped headband and custom skates fit with blinking lights asks, would I mind? So we roll from the worn carpet onto the glossy floor. One hand on my waist, he gazes at a far wall and sings in high quivering tones to endless love. We pass a dozen other couples, office managers in sports shirts, single mothers squeezed into new jeans, and a few lone ones gliding through the tide of clasped hands. Take the handsome man with dark hair swept like a raven's wings from its stern middle part, the mustache trimmed to a neat M dash. He moves like a figure skater, one long leg aloft behind his jumpsuited frame. No woman here tonight can match his prowess as he weaves easy figure eights, turns and sails backwards without a glance. Though I imagine his likely office job, manning some cubicle in a gray and taupey sea, in the gaping dark that crouches nightly at his door. Now, the rink's Robert Plant commands the floor beneath a silver disco orb and twirls once, twice, a third time, pretending not to watch us, watching him. In his prime in 85, that bleached mass of frizzed out curls would have bobbed radiant under hot stage lights during the guitar solo, his attention wrapped to the arted hand, yet aware as a preening animal of the lip-glossed girls in the front row whose eyes simmered with envy and desire. But the gigs have fizzled into soundlessness. The Dodge van scrapped. The red guitar lies long untuned in its velvet chamber. Yet each Sunday at eight, 
He pulls the black skates from their nook and somehow finds a rhythm not unlike rock and roll in this dim-lit dome with its carnival colors and claw machine and women fluffing their hair and restroom mirrors. Just overhead hover the sour divorces, languished careers, botched plans, those hours when life took a sharp turn toward the inscrutable and left us older and daunted in its wake. But when the DJ calls the night's last song, we, the lonesome and afraid, the jaded and lost, peer through strobe lights for somebody, if not lovable, then not a lunatic, and sing to a tune, we first heard the summer someone else left and we wept against a cool steering wheel and felt the world spin fierce and marvelous beneath our feet. Yeah, it's a great poem with a great ending too from round number 24. That was Adult Night at Skate World by Christina Callery, uh, the title poem to her chapbook. Um, and it's interesting thinking about that, you know, looking back at, uh, you know, now 18 years later, you know, I have friends on the dating scene and everything is like swipe left and swipe right. I think it's sad that there's no more skate world. <laughs> you know, there's no more places. There is, to... there is though. I went back and I took the, the photo for the button. <laughs> Um, they're, they're still happening um, in different places all around the country. And actually, I think roller skating has like uh, had a resurgence recently, like for adults. Oh, um, really? That's interesting. But to your point, yes. Um, in, in the dating world, a lot of things are sadly uh, online and, and in the app swipe right or left sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a throwback to a different time. I have a friend who is looking for, uh, you know, somebody and uh, I, I told him that he should join a church. I think that was his only way to actually meet people these days. Cause people, we don't even work in the same room as people anymore. And so how would you, uh, how would you do that? Um, so, so tell us a little bit about the chat book. Um, what was it that, that made you put this together as a collection of poems? Um, well, this was something that was on my list for a long time and um, kind of a late bloomer, sort of, uh, I guess, true to form for me. Uh, I had been publishing poems in different journals for years, and it had always been in the back of my mind, but different things in my life got in the way. And um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017, and that lit a fire mm um under my butt to get going and to get serious about something that i feel is like central to my identity and to who i am and has been the most important part of my life i think in a lot of ways as a writer um you know which some i every people who who listen and love poetry will understand that but to a lot of people it sounds very strange because there's no money in it a lot of people don't like it. A lot of poets don't like it. You know, there's that famous line, I too dislike it. But um, for me, it feels like when you pare back the onion of the meaningful things that you can say as a writer in this world, to me, it's it's, it's at the center of my heart. So I, um, that was a very long-winded way of answering that I, I finally... Um, assemble these poems and and put them into book form and uh that's how it came to be 
Yeah, well, it's a great book. Um, and so so you do so many different things, um, you know, with uh, the Paranormal Podcast that we'll talk more about later, uh, mm-hmm. but also writing, um, you know, freelancing for fashion magazines, too, and then uh, writing poetry as well. What, how is it that poetry fits into the nexus of all of that? It's a, a, quite a variety of things to do. You don't see many people into uh, the paranormal plus the other things, too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I use I, I haven't done any uh, like of writing for magazines in a little while. Although in, I I I love I love magazines. Uh, always have since I was a kid. Um, but I do copywriting uh, for advertising, and I have like a, an area of specialization in beauty. Although I've done a lot of automotive too, being mm-hmm. in Detroit. Um, you know, I honestly feel like uh, poetry at its essence is about trying to kind of distill everything down to this core meaning and uh, pare down, you know, the sense of things, capture them in as few words as possible. And, you know, in a lot of ways, although not every poet subscribes to that philosophy, but um, that's definitely, I think, I see that play out in different aspects of my writing, you know, in work, you know, I'll, I'll tap my poetry sensibilities to be able to come up with something that's like a little more uh, like of an anthem or, um, you know, when I want to describe something, say if I am doing a story for a magazine, you know, I find that like trying to reach for words that might be, you know, a little less expected, you know, to, to paint a picture um, it, it's definitely something that I, I feel like I don't, I don't necessarily stop being a poet, a poet at any point in time, you know? And I feel like with, with the paranormal, there definitely is this convergence because, um, they're both like an, an attempt to describe and engage with the mysteries of life and consciousness and like the ineffable, so, you know, it might seem at first glance like, oh, this is like really strange and so far removed. Um, but there's like a long history of poets that, um, you know, the Romantic poets and and Keats and Poe and, you know, many poets. I Even I think Whitman had one that bordered on the paranormal. Um, they're not at odds with each other. Um, I think they're very much at home together. Yeah, I think a lot about uh, the Rattle Young Poets uh, anthology that we do and how, uh, you know, that imagination that young poets have is so much a part of poetry. It's like we're all as adults trying to find that magic space where, you know, things can just flower up out of your mind that didn't exist before. And then you can enter that. And, and it's a whole world as real as the world that we're living in now. And then what we don't think about, too, is the dark side of that, because the, the frightening things are also just as real as they are uh, mm. now. And And so it's sort of a, you know, there's a way to go back to that but it's a way that includes all the stuff we used to be afraid of too um so that's really interesting we should talk more about that in a little bit but let's let's share another poem from the book and we're going to be moving okay. through uh which is kind of interesting we're gonna be moving through um links because you sent a bunch of links to the poems and so we can see where they were published too swan falls in love with swan shaped boat is next up and this was published on failbetter.com uh, mm-hmm. and so it's always neat to look at other literary magazines too uh, but let's hear this poem christina okay all right. Um, and I always think of this poem as like a found poem because it came about, I was basically um, just serving the web one day. Um, I was trying to write, I was kind of blocked and 
I had a reading coming up and I came across this headline, um, you know, when I was procrastinating and it jumped out at me and I just had this immediate sense that if I don't write this poem, somebody else is going to get to it first. I've got to do it. And the poem came to me. Um, Catherine was talking about a poem arriving and this one, like the arrival point was just as soon as I saw this headline and, and it was Swan Falls in Love with Swan Shaped Boat. Um, and it starts out with an, an epigram from uh, Reuters, Dateline Berlin. A swan has fallen in love with a plastic swan-shaped paddle boat on a pond in the German town of Munster and has spent the past three weeks flirting with the vessel five times its size, a sailing instructor said Friday. I felt like this was very relatable, at least for me. He's not half nuts, this German swan. To love something so near the actual, you might squint from shore, squishing sand beneath your toes to see its broad white belly part the shining green, neck angled always toward the clouds, deflecting every antic of its frenzied mini-suitor. This happens, right? Who among us with a single red corpuscle hasn't dug in and waited the whole doomed thing to its conclusion? Wanting some chill beauty to paddle its slow turn toward us on the man-made lake. In your case, not a monster tourist boat, let's hope, but more like the narcissist with lovely eyes and a voice to unzip things to, or the one that cut the right profile but sank like a Petoskey stone. But still, in spite of tear stains, sucker punches, fists to the glass jaw, the dumb heart beats, then tries again. See, there he goes, beak agog and hissing at the rival birds, wings spread to seem more menacing, black webbed feet paddling frantic through the algae. Then night sets and a silver moon beams down on bird and boat, afloat alone and in the pale light looking for all the world like the shape of love. Yeah, another great poem that was uh, Swan Falls in Love with Swan-Shaped Boat, which is a great headline. Whoever wrote that headline um, <laughs> did a wonderful job with it. And it's just a poem asking to be happened. I think you definitely were the first person to it. But uh, There was a part two, because actually they took away the paddle boat and then they reunited the depressed swan with the boat later. Oh, um, really? so I could have wrote a, written a second poem. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it, it just uh, sometimes those headlines just make the poems happen. And I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about in the for the poets respond opening section about how, you know, it's sort of easy to write political poems, but there's so many other stories out there in the world that you can write poems about. And so uh, we always encourage people to include poems just like this. If there's a strange story and it sparks your imagination, uh, write a poem about it. Um, so you, you mentioned doing copywriting and I'm always curious about the relationship between copywriting and, and advertising and poetry. Cause there's, there's a way that, um, you know, you want to engage people and have them have a reaction and have it be contained in something that moves them and, and makes them do something, which is the same thing you want as poetry. But there's also a way that like poetry for whatever reason, like you already mentioned, doesn't have the audience that the, of the general public. I mean, most people don't like, um, to me, I feel like poetry triggers a lot of um, cognitive dissonance because it's pushing against mm -hmm. your your preconceived models of the world. 
And advertising, I think you kind of can't really do that. So I'm always curious about the, the there's a way that they're similar and the way that they're different. Uh, so how much do you use, you know, poetry within advertising? And, and what's the relationship between writing copy for one and poems for the other? Um, well, actually, I, I do use it quite a bit. Um, there are these, uh, you know, exercises that we do a lot of times if we're trying to come up with like a larger concept for a campaign and they're called manifestos. And it's exactly what you think. It's like sort of this anthemic kind of thing. And it, it at its essence is a poem. And, um, you know, I know when you say advertising, you know, it's it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to kind of write everything off is just this, this like crass materialism. But, um, you know, honestly, it, I look at it more as a, as a writer, as an exercise uh, in trying to, in you know, get to the heart of what it is that will kind of stir the emotions. And I, I often bring in <laughs> like poetry, even like, kind of phrases or lines or words that I've been thinking of um, and kind of like reference them the same way that I would do when I'm writing an actual poem, um, when I'm writing these manifestos. And I've actually written stuff before that's made me tear up. Um, you know, I, I try to, I try to, um, I guess, uh you know, keep it authentic as much as I can, although that's not always possible when you're doing something and it's, and it's, you know, marketing, you know, in commerce. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's like anything else. I think like you can, you can find poetry or the inspiration for a poem, like you were just saying in the everyday, in a billboard, in, you know, a snippet of dialogue you hear in the grocery store and you never know where a poem's going to strike you. And so I feel like it's kind of just, you know, if, if you have that awareness, you know, and you keep yourself kind of open, then I think it's kind of, it can kind of flow back and forth. Both my parents were teachers and there's a part of me that feels like maybe, you know, I miss my calling a bit. Um, but I do enjoy working with younger writers and, you know, helping them, kind of like uh, craft the writing. Um, but the teaching is, it, it's, a, it's a calling in itself and it's a very difficult job. And I saw that firsthand growing up. So, so when did you know you wanted to be a poet? When was the, the interest in that kindled? Was it at a young age with your parents as teachers or was it later on? Yeah, I grew up around books. My parents, you know, read to me. Um, they got divorced at a young age, and I primarily lived with my mom. But um, she always read to me. We'd go to the library. We'd get out. I still remember uh, 12 books. That was the maximum we could get. I wanted to get as, as many books as we could. <laughs> so we always got the 12. And then she'd read to me. And, and I grew up in um, Marquette, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula, which is a very, like, rural town. It's very cold, very long winters. And so we'd, we'd get into bed at night and snuggle up under the covers, and she'd read me a bedtime story. Um. And so, um, you know, reading and stories really came alive for me then. And I would say with poetry, it kind of started young. I mean, I, I remember writing it in grade school, but I think it really started in my like early teen years when I started getting into, um, I remember like 
going through my mom's old English lit books and finding like murder ballads and and creepy stuff. And a teacher had uh, read us uh, the Telltale Heart at Halloween. And I fell in love with Poe. And so I was reading Annabelle Lee and um, Romeo and Juliet. And I, I think it just kind of, I was very much a romantic. And I also had a creepy side, I think, back then, an interest in the paranormal and ghost stories and all of that. And so um, that's where I really found uh sort of like this this home in poetry i think and then um but but i i still um i i wrote stories ever since i was a little kid i i i think my first um story that i ever did was before i could actually read and write and so i just drew pictures and if it, it was of these two sisters that went and stole treasure from monsters in a cave so i guess the sensibility was like there um, but when i got to college um I kind of intended to go into fiction and I had a teacher that really brought poetry to life for us. And for better or worse, that's the road I turned down and then, and I didn't look back. Well, let's, uh, let's hear another poem, um, from, from adult night skate world. The next one up is uh, burnouts, um, a okay. Detroit poem from Digging Through the Fat, which is at diggingpress.com, another interesting journal to take a look at. But let's hear, uh, let's hear this poem. Okay. Um, so the high school that I went to uh, was in Downriver, Detroit, South Kent High School. And um, they were basically, it's, a, it's a, a working class neighborhood, at least it was at the time. I'm assuming it still is. And... Um, Basically, there were two groups of kids. You could be in the burnouts or you could be the jocks. Um, you can guess which ones were the more popular, like cool kids. Um, I was sort of, uh, there, there were also like a few uh, floating, like kind of artsy weirdos. I was one of those. <laughs> but you can kind of tell from this poem whose side I was on. Um, because one day, um, actually, and it made the local paper, um, the jocks and the burnouts had like a rumble, like there was an actual <laughs> fight that broke out between the two groups. There was a lot of tension there. You know, the jocks thought they were a little, they were a lot better. You know, burnouts were, it was like, it's that old story, you know, from the other side of the tracks or, you know. So anyway, um, it starts out um, with a quote from Heavy Metal Parking Lot, a documentary that's it's wonderful. If you haven't seen it yet, it's very short. Um and it says, there's enough burnouts out there to go hands across America. And then a quote from Lita Ford. I went to a party last Saturday night. I didn't get laid. I got in a fight. You'd see them rolling joints in class, textbook prop to hide the task, feathered hair fringing their eyes, a starter mustache shadowing their upper lips. Always a few hanging out on empty bleachers, trading swigs from something bottom shelf in a paper bag, and always the jagged lettered logos of their concert tees, their suede boots like the ones worn by the guy in seventh hour fine arts. He pulled them on every day in snowbound December and blazing June, laced to the knee over jeans tight as snake skin, Beckle, belt buckle shaped like a woman's clutching hand, forever poised just short of third base, a heavy metal send-up of the poet's Grecian urn. I never knew his name, 
but I recall his cloud-gray, half-mast eyes, his bic-penned scrawls of fiery skulls and undead guitarists, his public makeouts with some girl by the acrylic paints. He'd float through hallways, an apathetic ghost, gliding onward to its dead-end job, jail term, or other bad term. But it would be sweet justice if he dodged the old cliches and got by okay. It would be a flipped bird from the window of a black Camaro they said would never make it off the blocks. Watch it peel onto the entrance ramp, rebuilt engine roaring, to catch the last gleam of sunlight fading fast behind the trees. Yeah, another great story that was Burnouts by Christina Callery. And it's very clear, like looking at these three poems we've seen already, that, that you're really focused on narrative in your poems. And, and the storytelling is the main aspect. People will see later when I was trying to tell a story in my open mic poem coming up. Um, I, I'm not, I don't understand how to do that. <laughs> I have trouble with narratives um, in, in poems. How do you go about, how do you approach a poem um, from that perspective of storytelling? Uh, I mean, the key seems to be not letting anybody get bored. You know, I mean, you really have to tell a story in a way that's engaging the whole time. Um, but how do you approach storytelling? Do you, how do you know when this is a story you're going to tell? And then when you sit down to write it, how do you approach telling that story? You know, honestly, I kind of feel like, and it's something that I heard you say uh, in another interview where you talk about just kind of having this recognition moment of, of something being poetic. And I feel like it kind of, for me, it, like it, it hinges. There's something where I was like, oh yeah, I could, I, that's a poem. That's a poem. That's a poem. And I like write it down. Um, uh, it, but in a way, like I, I envy what you're describing because I feel like the l- lyricism, I think it's the you know, in a lot of ways, it's the highest form of poetry. It's when you let go of that control. And I feel like for me, there's a struggle between the narrative and the lyric. And um, I bring them together. But I think that probably comes out of, you know, how I kind of got my start, which was sort of writing these, you know, short stories or, or writing a lot of more like fictional stuff. And then it kind of um, later on, merge with poetry mm-hmm. and I so I feel like it's just kind of like how I how I write but but I envy the ability to just completely let go of everything of all the guardrails and just free fall yeah well everybody you know envies <laughs> the other side because I just knowing the story I have real trouble like conveying a story that I already know in a way that you know, is engaging. So, so when you have a story, a story like burnouts, like you recognize you want to write a poem like that, like what do you physically do? Like, do you sit down and write notes about it? Trying to do you like brainstorm like one of those manifestos you were talking about in the um, marketing meetings, or do you just let yourself go? You know, with the narrative of the story. Like, what's the? How do you go about a narrative poem? You know, honestly, it'll just be like I jot. A lot of times I'll jot down a note. It'll be like an idea, like whether it's like a working title or sometimes it'll be like things will because I, I, you know, another thing I've always loved and that has been close to my heart is music. And I feel like that's so important to poetry. And a lot of times they'll be like kind of like a little like a phrase or something that that sort of floats through my mind and I'll be like, okay, yeah, 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 okay. This, this could be a poem and I, and I write that down, you know, so it's just like sort of an assemblage of different notes. And then, um, you know, when I sit down to write something, you can kind of tell early on if I need to put this aside for a while or maybe forever, or if it's something that I can 
make into something um, longer and, you know, like more of a finished product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's do another poem. All right. Let's do um, mm -hmm. this is a good transition poem. I think from the last from the book we'll do. Let's do Harvest Moon on Trash Night which is um, a little bit of a transition for Halloween. And this is from uh, Sundress Publications uh, magazine, Stirring. So uh, why don't you read that? Okay. Hauling out the last black hefty bag, I spot the full moon fat as a lemon bunt cake above the dumpsters. Three stray cats dart into spindly elms that split the reeking bins from the railroad tracks beyond. At night, Steel freighters thunder through here, jittering loose windows, sounding their low drone that strikes the heart's anvil like longing. This is the sort of place you live when you don't know where to go. Young couples dreaming lifetimes in their first shared beds, guys who know too much about kung fu films, or the just divorced getting by between visitation Sundays. I've grown to hate this sameness. The nowhere feel of modest brick, communal lawn plots, strip malls of the soul. But tonight, the big moon stops me cold, haloing the slate October sky and whisked by clouds like the sky one autumn years ago after a nightmare kept me up. My mother laced her boots and walked with me around our northern town to help me sleep down past dark houses to the street of empty shops that faced the shore. Far below, I knew, black waves of Lake Superior rushed the rocky crags. In the quiet night that already smelled of snow, we heard the constant churning undertow. The moon looked near enough to touch the unleafed limbs, or if I stretched my palm, I might feel its scarred and dusty face so many miles from home. Yeah, it's another great poem, uh, Harvest Moon on Trash Night. I thought it was a great example of uh, what poetry kind of does, is these moments that break us out of the sameness of life. And that's what, what a poem is usually about, is that some, there's something special about a, a moment. And you can even look at something like haiku, as small as that is, and there's something special there. And that harvest moon on trash night is a perfect metaphor for, for how the poetry works. Um, so, so you do the Shadowland Paranormal Podcast, which is just a fascinating direction to go, um, be, you know, being a poet. Um, and there is something you mentioned romantic um, before, and there's something romantic about the paranormal at the same time. Um, what do you think that connection is? Because it is, like, if you think of the Romantic era, there is a sort of love poetry side to it. And then there's this, like, darker side of, of creepiness that you get with people like mm -hmm. Poe or uh, Emily Dickinson, uh, others like that, or, you know. So, so what is it that, that have the two have in common? Why is there this sort of synergy between the two? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I think that there is... Um, something about being drawn to places that other might others might scorn or look at as ugly or abandoned or run down or ruined, but seeing kind of like the beauty and decay and also feeling that the urgency and there's like this tension between love on the one hand and death on the other and I don't know. What do you think? That's a great question. I'm sort of spit, spitballing here, but um, what... yeah, I don't know. There's something about um, 
I don't know, the unknown and, and the mm-hmm. desire for more than the, what we have in our existence right now, it seems to me, is the key to it. You know, it's like reaching beyond the sameness, the mundane um, is sort of what romantic is in all of its manifestations. And one of them is that darker side of the coin. Um, you know, if, if there is a world which is full of ghosts and goblins and demons and ravens that know you're about to die and all those things, that means that there's more to the re- reality than just the monotony of like having to go to work and get a job and finding food, you know, and, and doing all those day-to-day things that we all have to do. Um, it means that we're living in a bigger place. And I think that maybe is the thing that have in common is that reaching for something that's like grand. I think there's something grand in both, you know, ghost stories and something grand in love stories. I think maybe that would be my guess as to what yeah. is in common. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's an amazing way of putting it. You know, it's like it gets gets us very close to the the miracle of of life, and like you know, it's all good news. Even if there's something like super scary or, or like demonic or whatever, in the end, it's all good news. There's something larger and and a bigger reality out there. Um, I really love that quote from Hamlet. There are more things in heaven and earth that are than are dreamt of in your philosophies, Horatio. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think the the prompt for this week and the, and the podcast later is your biggest fear, or not your biggest fear, but a fear. And I was trying to think of my biggest fear. And I think my biggest fear is that there's nothing but materialism. You know, there's yeah. nothing but like physical reality is. And I don't know, it, it's such a, a sad thought that there's just you know, chemical interactions on slime that was sitting on rocks four billion years ago. And then it's sort of built up, you know, the idea that there's nothing more that you look out in the universe and all these stars are quiet, you know, I mean, that's a terrifying mm-hmm. thought. And I think, um, you know, and maybe these stories are something that help us not have that idea that, that there's something bigger and grander in what what's going on. Yeah, I agree. It's like that we're just some sort of random accident of particles you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that, yeah, I think that's the most terrifying thought for me too. So, so how did you get, I mean, how did you get into also doing boring. A... It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how do you, uh, how did you get into the paranormal, uh, podcast business though? Um, what was podcast? it? What made you wanted to do that show? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I had an, an old friend, uh, I lived in New York for seven years. And when I was there, uh, at the job I was at, I was partnered with, um, uh, someone who was a, from a, an art and design background. And we worked very well together and we became friends. His name is Seth Jablin. And, um, you know, sometimes we'd go out for drinks after work and we'd talk. And inevitably, we'd start talking about paranormal stuff. And, you know, it's like you kind of feel like you belong to the secret club in a way because like you said, like we're kind of immersed in this culture of, you know, not that everyone subscribes to it, but just materialism and, it, and it's sort of a heavy weight and it, it, and you feel like you're a weirdo or some kind of outlier. If you admit that you entertain some of these ideas, especially um, in, in like intellectual circles or, you know, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. So, but he and I would talk and I remember, you know, I think one of the first conversations we ever, we ever had about something, his eyes lit up and he was telling me all about the Mothman. And I was like, this is really cool. And that just kind of never ended. And so um, it was pre-COVID, it was 2019. Um, but I had gone um, to visit and we were sitting in a bar in Brooklyn. And I was like, and hey, we should do a podcast. You know, 
we should just talk about this stuff, you know? And um, yeah, so so we started one. And, and basically the idea was just to kind of, it gave both of us an excuse to learn more and take a deeper dive into all of these rent. I mean, there's so much out there. There's so many stories. And so we tackle a different subject for every episode. Um, but it also gave us kind of like a, like a place and a space where we could kind of talk about this and not feel judged and, you know, connect with like-minded people who have the same kind of interests. Do you remember the, the first, I don't know, like story that intrigued you like that? Um, I'm trying, I was trying to think of, uh, the first one for me, cause I, you know, this, this show, the format of this, I try to make it kind of like the Art Bell coast to coast episodes. Yes. Oh know, my God. Oh my God. The, yes. And I love that. And so today's like the ghost to ghost open lines that he used to have, uh, where people are sharing their ghost stories. But I love that just the, the mystery and the possibility of there being something more is just always fascinating. I used to work a lot of overnight shifts. So I listened to all those shows. Um, but, and I'm trying to think of like what the first thing that interests me, like, you know, there's like Bigfoot and like UFOs and, um, you know, Bermuda Triangle. Like yeah. Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Which you don't hear much about. So it's interesting how they sort of come and go, you know, and, and the Bermuda Triangle was a big one, um, that used to, and I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. Do you remember what the first sort of, you know, non-normal thing, uh, that, that caught your attention when you were however many years old? I mean, I probably, I think when I was a little kid, I used to, uh, I used to love to read ghost stories. And I remember, you know, checking something out from the library and they actually, and, and I had, I found it years later. It's still around. It's still out there. Um, I can send it to you if you want. Um, but there was like an image captured of this. Uh, it was just like a classic uh, haunted house moment, but basically there you can see this sort of misty figure descending the stairs and this was an alleged ghost photograph and i was just like oh my god and um plus uh, the place i grew up um it was very rural so it was near the woods and so fall was like it it, it was just it was intense <laughs> you know with all of the leaves and you could just really feel the, the whole like weight of the season and I feel like that was a big influence too. But, um, but yeah, I, th I think it would probably be ghost stories. And then I really got interested in the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot and then UFOs. And it just kind of never stopped except for a brief period in college when I became an atheist for a while. And I'm like, I was raised in a very religious environment. So I had to like rebel. I had to like shut all that down. I had to push it all away and be like, yeah, there's nothing. I'm just a materialist. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I wasn't a very good one because like pretty soon I started like reading about astral projection and, and it all started up again. Let's just start looking at the chat window, which you can't see, but um, people are listing things. It's like a walk through my childhood. There's the Hardy Boys and Scooby Doo. Oh my Eric God, Von the Dan Hardy again. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Nancy Drew. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and there was like um, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, that show on TV. Oh, and, I love yeah, Unsolved Mysteries. And the X Files. And, and, the, and the new one is great too. I haven't seen the new one, but um, did you ever have any uh, experience personally where you experienced something that you didn't think was something? that would be accepted by the mainstream view of the world, let's say. Yes. And I think the fact that I was, I was raised in a very kind of, I guess, strict uh, religious household Christian. My mom was 
she was very passionate, some might say fanatical in a lot of ways, you know, but in a way I kind of, I, I look at it now as sort of her art form that she practiced. Um, she was a very intelligent um, and empathetic and, and deep person and had her own experiences that she brought to it. But that being said, that that's a lot, that's a lot uh, for a kid to be raised around. And I think it, it, there were aspects of it that felt like a felt burdensome and like it was hemming me in and that I needed to rebel against. But, but I think I always just naturally had this fascination with it too, with the supernatural aspect, you know, mm-hmm. and like wanting to believe and wanting to have an experience. And there have been experiences that I've had over the course of my life um, that are personal to me that, um, I think for the most part, uh, it has been, I've had this, you know, something that felt a little more like a spiritual religious, um, experience a couple of times. Um, but I've also kind of had a sort of a, I guess you call it like a psychic or ESP or some kind of, you know, something um, connected to my dreams. I've had dreams that have come true and it's happened over and over throughout the years um, where like, for example, uh, a good friend of mine, um, I dreamed that she told me she was pregnant. A few days later I was visiting her and she came out of the bathroom and told me she was pregnant, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it happened ever since I was probably like a, like a teen, a young teen. Um, but it doesn't have, it's nothing I can predict. Um, it's something that just like, it, it's very random. Um, and I've had both my parents have passed away and I have had what I, I, personally believe uh could be two visitation dreams which is when uh it's a dream that feels um like it's different from other dreams that you may have about a departed loved one it's where it it feels there are hallmarks about it where there's a sense that you're having a real conversation um their mood they're they're very happy it feels very real it feels like you're kind of removed from the current reality it's not just like a dream where your brain's working out some kind of you know some issue and bringing in random visuals and stuff it's like it feels like a conversation i've had two of those Mm -hmm. um but yeah but uh, i think it it's been fascinating for me to dive into other people's stories and what they've experienced what about you uh, well, I've had, um, I, I can tell the ghost story. I have a ghost story. Oh I also God. had, um, uh, I'll tell it in the open lines because that's what the poem is about that I wrote this week. Yeah. Um, but um, I've had that and I've had, um, uh, there was a time where I, I really wondered about aliens because I sleepwalked. I, I, I shared this before one time. I had a poem about that in the open lines too once, but I uh, sleepwalked when I was a kid, like when I was like 12 or 13. And uh, sometimes I'd literally wake up outside. Like I'd sleepwalk outside, like in my pajamas or underwear or whatever, like by the mailbox down by the road with my like dad shaking me to be like, wake up, you're sleepwalking again. And I'd be like, oh, and then I just thought that was weird. And then I saw probably on, you know, the Unsolved Mysteries or the X-Files or something. And I was like, aliens, I've been abducted by aliens. <laughs> and so I got little like goosebumps that that thought of like, maybe the aliens pick me up in bed and plop me up in my, you know, in the mailbox in front of the house. So I don't know. There's There's been that. And definitely the um, 
the, the psychic type stuff like the um like katie and i will be talking about stuff and then it'll appear in someone else's poem on the open lines like that week like somehow i don't know what like we knew someone was writing a poem about that and so it got into our brain or like our brain projected out to that brain i was trying to think of like a unifying um you know, if, if there is like a strangeness, like a higher strangeness than the sort of the, the science that the scientific method can piece together, like what would be the unifying thing behind it? And it seems to me that consciousness is the central aspect of it. Like there's a way that either we like see things beyond what we see or we project out, which might even be more likely that like yeah. somehow our collective imagination is what's like generating reality. And so it's really fascinating to me how, you know, for example, the, um, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there have been sort of like UFO type sightings. But at the time, it was like religious figures, like the sun coming down to earth and things like that. But now that we have this like technological society where there'd be like UFOs and spaceships is something we think about. All of a sudden we see spaceships, you know, and there's this way that like we project reality out onto the world. And maybe that's the thing, like the ghosts are like your imagination making a ghost manifest like out of your mind, because they're, we're all like holograms living on the surface of a four dimensional black hole or something like that. I don't know. So um, like a tulpa, you know, where you kind of like make something materialize. Like, yeah, like what if we're all doing that? And what if like, you know, like not you don't like see the future, but you like make the future happen because it's all some kind of like movie that we're actively projecting in a collective, but occasionally, we get enough control of the script where a reality, you know, pops out and maybe that's it. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Well, actually, I really, uh, I love the philosophy, um, that some people have and I, I, her name escapes me at the moment. There was, um, and I can send it to you later, but, uh, there's a book out by a Harvard neurologist talking that basically, um, was like a survey of different kind of like psychic phenomena and ESP and her conclusion and other people have come up with the same one. And I really, that really resonates with me is that the brain is not a, like materialism says a generator of consciousness. You know, it's not just like this glob in your head that just, you know, creates the thoughts and then just like a machine when it dies, when you die, it dies the end. It's a filter of consciousness. And we're here in this dimension living our lives and for whatever reason we're kind of chained down to the physical realm but there are moments where you can kind of the the filter can be thinned a little bit so you know it can be meditation it can be dream the dream state or if people astral project or if they have some kind of drug trip or you know even people who are like you know having some kind of um you know, psychotic break or whatever else, not to say that there isn't mental illness in, in there. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but just that in different states and, and near death, which is like one of my favorite episodes um, for Shadowland that we ever did, we talked to someone who studies that stuff, but near death experiences, when people are near death, a lot of times they see things. Um, so it's like then the filter's thinner and it lets things through. So um, there's a larger reality out there, which we don't have access to most of the time here, but sometimes we do. That's what I think. Yeah, I, th I think that that is the, the explanation. I mean, there's two, of course. There's the rational one that we have a yeah. lot of cognitive biases, a lot of holes. Like there's this spot that I can't see because my, 
you know, uh, the neuron connected to my eyeball is right there, but I fill in the gap anyway. <laughs> you know, there's that confirmation bias. You know, I mean, maybe there, we have a thousand things that could possibly be generated and all of a sudden we see, oh, that's the one that, you know, I had the dream last night, but that million times it doesn't happen. So that's one explanation. And the other is that there's this grand reality that's a little bigger than our reality or, or an infinitely bigger than our reality. And we just are seeing a sliver of what's actually here. And I mean, to be honest, I go back and forth. And I think one of the fascinating things about poetry um, is that it's a way that that consciousness, whatever it is, that strangeness talks to each other. Like there's a way that it's it's like this, almost like a seance, like you're, you know, there's that whole thing about like being inhabited. I don't know if you've ever done any episodes on that, but the, you know, being inhabited like a medium, and like we say that we feel like a medium as we're writing, like a lot of poets will say, like, it feels like someone else is writing this. And it's a way to tap into whatever is deeper, be that the subconscious or the higher realm of the collective consciousness. Uh, right. There's something there. And when a poem is great, it connects on that level across, you know, across people. And, and I think that's that's why, because there's some kind of collectiveness that's going on. So there's a I do think it ties right back into poetry. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you just said it. That's great. So so what is so you mentioned the near death experience episode um, that is that that being your favorite. So tell us about that one. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah it's very close to my heart. Uh, um, so we we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Long, who has studied um near-death experiences for many years and basically he has a website that has amassed you know an enormous amount i think it's it's in the thousands now of near-death experiences from all over the world and um they were reading the site i i, I had come across his book earlier i want to say because he's written a couple books too um, about this experience, but he started out, he, you know, he's a trained physician. He's got a very scientific mind and he, um, heard, uh, the, I think it was like the wife of a friend of his shared a near death experience with him. And he became very interested in the subject and he started, he, he was a radiation oncologist. And so he was hearing from patients who were near death, um, different stories. And he just really took a deep dive into this stuff. And then, um, wrote about it later, but also has this place where you can go through and you can read all of them. And there are thousands and I've read through many of them. Um, my, um, when my mom passed away, it was just, I had never, um, I lost my grandmother, you know, I lost more distant relatives. I'd never gone through death like that. It had never gotten that close to me. And it was just, I was so close to her and, uh, loved her so much. And it was just heart wrenching and it was very, comforting for me to read through these experiences and not just because of wishful thinking, because one of the things that I noticed is that, you know, you think of near-death experience, you think of, oh, the tunnel and the light at the end, and you see the relatives and they come to get you. And there are all of these tropes and cliches. There were little things that I kept seeing. And it, it, from people's stories, it doesn't matter where they live or what their cultural or religious background is, but there are these little small specifics and similarities and that's what kind of started to convince me and i asked him when we had him on the show to share some of his you know the favorite stories and also i asked him is there you know is there any part of you that doubts any of this and he was basically like no hmm. wow 
I can't say that yet because I still struggle, you know, with, with, with what I think, you know, just as like what you said you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely go back and forth. I think some days it's, it's sort of fun to believe in stuff and sometimes it's frightening to believe in stuff and sometimes it's frightening not to believe in stuff. And I think that maybe clouds your opinion too much. Um, but it is just, a, it's fun to think about it, you know, just think about things that are outside. And maybe that's another way that it relates to poetry because you have a a voice or a, a concept that's like external to your actual reality. You're generating this whole like separate world when you're making a poem. And so, um, and, and, and it's a separate world that's like possible and could be true, maybe not. And you start to suspend this disbelief in order to get there. Um, and then when you do, it's interesting, and the implications of that are interesting. Um, I think the near-death experience is a great segue. You had some favorite poems uh, from the Romantic era that you wanted to share and read. Um, and either the apparition by John Donne or Annabelle Lee would be a good one to read right now, given the uh, topic. Oh, you know, Poe, of course, you know, all those people in his life died. And most of his writing was about how to deal with that and imagining a different life in a way to be reunited again. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe Poe, do you want to read Annabelle Lee? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I never get tired of it. <laughs> it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived, whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. In this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee, with the love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her highborn kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who are older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. And that was Annabelle Lee, of course, by Edgar Allan Poe, and one of the first poets you loved, one of the first poets I loved, a creepy poem in multiple respects. So I think he's writing about his very young wife, too, um, but and a, a metaphor for all of the loss. And, and it made me think, uh, as you were reading it, about you know that comparison between romanticness and, and, the, and the supernatural. There's a way that the, the was is so... Um, 
prevalent in that poem. Like the love was there, but it's no longer there. And there's a way too with the paranormal that you get that sense of a higher thing going on in the world and then it's gone. You know, like if you somebody who sees a UFO once, um, we did have a UFO here, which I think was just a drone. But one night uh, I was watching TV out the window and there was this light that was like going through the trees. And I was like, what is that? Because um, we, li- we do live near a military base. And so I think maybe it was like a drone, maybe it was doing something. But there was this light and it was like strange and it was kind of covering through and you could see some of the trees like blocking it. Like it was, it was that low. And I went out to the porch to like get a better look. And as soon as I opened the door and looked out, it like shot straight up. And um, it was strange. And if you go to uh, the right. What's that? Oh, quickly. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, it like within like five seconds, it was so far away that I couldn't see it anymore. So mm-hmm. um, and then on oh, the. That sounds like a drone, man. It does sound know. like a drone. This was like. No, I said I don't know. Oh, you, if it sounds like a drone. I don't know. Well, I live right next to Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, and we are in the flight <laughs> corridor, and okay. I don't know. And but uh, going on to our like online forum, this was like twelve years ago, maybe. There's a whole bunch of posts, like tons of people saw it. Um, but then you see something, you're like, "What was that?" And then it's gone, you know. And there's that way that like, "Oh, that's something special that I don't see every day." Is that sense of breaking the strangeness, or, or the the sameness? I mean. And then it's gone and you, you like kind of want to get it back. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons people get into that paranormal feeling is like, oh, I saw something that was different and now it's gone and I need to find that feeling again of something different, you know, and it's outside of the monotony. Yeah. A lot of people that are researchers end up getting into it because they've had some kind of experience that they've like been close to something and it's been life changing for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about it uh, in that respect. Do you want to, let's see, if, if there are any questions um, for Christina, I'll pass them along, leave them in the chat when it was on Facebook or YouTube. I'll keep an eye on them. Um, but, but we did have a question already um, from, let me see, where did it go? It was Michelle Dobo, so I can't find exactly how she said it, but she was asking about whether or not um, you, you write, since you had this interest in the paranormal, um, how often do you write uh, paranormal poems? I know you wrote two recently that we're going to be looking at really quick as we uh, wrap okay. it up. But but how okay. often do you do that? Is it something that you're drawn to or not? You know, I w- it's it's kind of strange. Um, n- not that much. Um, I don't know if I be- it's because I get my paranormal fix from doing the podcast. Um, or, you know, I, I've written... I guess I take that back. I've written about, I guess what I, w- I would call it more of like the supernatural. Um, I've written poems that are kind of based on uh, experiences I had and growing up and being raised in, you know, sort of in proximity to this, um, the faith that I was raised around. Um so, uh, yeah, it's a good question, um, but not specifically like I actually last year I went back to Marquette where I was born and for a visit and I met um, one of the famous poets up there who writes a lot about Bigfoot. So he's like the Bigfoot poet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't say that, that that's that I've got anything like that. I, I, I kind of. I wish. <laughs> well, I do. But wonder. I am working on one on Mel's Hole. Yes, yeah, I love Mel's Hole too. And I want, I mean, there is, I mean, as you know, doing a paranormal podcast, there's a lot of more audience for paranormal stuff than there is for poetry. I mean, frankly, like if you go to a bookstore, the poetry shelf is like, you know, that big. 
and it's mostly like Dante and things like that. And then, uh, but the paranormal type stuff, any kind of, you know, strange things, ghost stories, it's a whole section, you know, and, and there's, um, you know, that we mentioned the Art Bell show, but that had, I don't know, 10 million people listening every night or something insane like that. Um, so do, do you ever think about, you know, capitalizing on that? Cause you have the one and the other and why not, why not put them together? Yeah. I do have a few different ones that I've started. Like I mentioned, um, the Mel's Hole and another one where when I was a teenager, I kind of imagined I saw Keith's ghost in my doorway. <laughs> like I have all these different poems started. So I guess there there are some, you know, um, a handful to maybe 10 um, that I've done. But yeah, I think that's a great idea. So tell Chapel us about the Mel's Hole, because I, I think I know what you're I do know what you're talking about, because um, it's from Art Bell. <laughs> but, it is uh, from Art Bell. Yeah. 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 So did you ever hear that episode? I did. I definitely did. I don't think I heard, heard it like live the time. But as, as I remember, though, somebody just called in and started describing this hole. So why don't you tell the story? Yes. Yeah, so basically, and this is one that we covered on Shadowland kind of earlier on, and it's one of my favorites to this day. Um, basically, the gist of it is that this guy named Mel Waters called into Art's Bell, Art Bell's uh, radio show in 1997, and he started te- like telling this incredibly crazy tale of a hole that he discovered on his property. And the story just was, it instantly grabbed me. I mean, it's it's like... It reminds me of something out of like the perfect 80s movie or something. Um, And basically, it's this very deep hole. Nobody in the neighborhood or surrounding area. I I got the feeling he lived in more of a rural area, kind of like a ranch type of place where his neighbors weren't super close by. But people would come in and they would dump their garbage into it because it was so deep. And even stuff like dead dogs or dead cattle, they'd throw things in there. And then there there was like this lore around around the thing like somebody's dog maybe came back from the dead later after he'd thrown it in there um but uh, mel goes on to describe how a friend of his, his had given him some fishing line and it was on these huge reels so there was a lot of it and so he tied some lifesavers to the end of it which i guess is an old trick to test if there's water on the end so if like the lifesavers start to melt or something you've reached water mm-hmm. and he lowered it down and then he would bring it back up and you know lifesavers are intact no water and so he kept lowering and lowering and lowering and lowering and he got at the time of this phone call he said 15 miles down into this hole and there's no sign of a bottom yet and so <laughs> And this was just like the first of several calls that this guy made. And they kept getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And I won't ruin it for everybody. Um, But uh, for a while, there was missing time. Uh, A nearby neighbor said that they saw like a a huge, enormous column, like, like a night spotlight shooting up out of the hole. But it was like solid black um, when he was driving by. The government apparently came and like when when Mel was away and like sealed off and wouldn't allow him back onto his property and then paid him all kinds of money and he left the country for a while. And it's this big meandering story. And then a second bottomless pit was discovered by Mel later on in one of the later calls. And um, he basically pulled you know, some strange stuff out of there, including something 
um, from the underworld that was what he described as a tumor seal, but it had these almost like, it was almost like a deity or something. It conveyed the sense of like infinite compassion and love and just radiate. It, it, it's, it's freaking bizarre. You've got to hear it for yourself. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it anymore, but yeah, um, it, it's so people fun. have like been searching for it. No one's been able to find it. And apparently it was, it was mysteriously, suspiciously blacked out on Google Earth. <laughs> so if you tried to find it, you couldn't find where Mel's hole was. Yeah, and I think it was in Oregon somewhere and uh, is in theory. And um, mm -hmm. like my, my kids, we watch Gravity Falls. I don't know if you've seen that show. It's on the Disney Channel. It's amazingly hilarious. It's like the funniest clean humor that's kid appropriate I've ever come in contact. It's a hilarious show. They have an episode based on Mel's Hole too. Although they oh, don't they call did. it that. Yeah. But um but what's amazing or interesting about it is it, it really shows what we were talking about before with the storytelling and how like you could have somebody call into the Art Bell show or wherever and have oh there's a hole and it's deep and you know but it was the way that he slowly unveiled it and sort of upped the ante and kept going and, and the pacing was just perfect on his just storytelling, whoever it was. Um, whether or not it was true or if it was just somebody trolling and enjoying it, but they were a great storyteller. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, and, and we can learn a lot, I think, in our poetry, our narrative poetry from this kind of storytelling, because there's a way that something like The Raven or something like Mel's whole story keeps us engaged and keeps us entertained uh, for as long as, you know, the storyteller is telling their story. Um, so it, it's fascinating. I love that Mel's whole story, too. Um, so wait, I want to do the two poems that you sent too. you have two poems okay. that are new and based on um, uh, supernatural stuff. Um, do you want to yeah, read yeah. one of those? Sure, sure. Okay, so so I guess I could, I could start off with, I wrote a sonnet. Um, and it was kind of um, inspired in a way from the John Donne one that I didn't read the apparition. Um, but basically, it's sort of, um, <laughs> it's called, it's a little bit petty. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, in the voice of someone uh, who's been spurned, not that I ever have experienced that personally. Um, kidding. Um, but it, it's called How I Would Haunt You. Not only in the ways you would expect, with flickering lights and obscure Smith song, to halt your cart from a Costco intercom, I'd haunt you hard, send 3 a.m. texts, I'd pick the oddest times to show my face, the DMV just as your numbers called, the last sod Cheerios circling your bowl, a billboard on the M10 overpass, and forget the nightgown, long and white. I'd go sexy into that good night, sled it up just so you'd know exactly what it is you're missing in the afterlife. And when you're drowning in some fevered dream, I'd wake you with a kiss that might have been. Yeah, that was great. Great song. How I Would Haunt You <laughs> by Christina Callery, a new one. Um, so what do you think about the fact that, um, that that these kind of stories are put off in a genre category? You know, like um, I had, I always think about this. I've mentioned it before on the Rattlecast, but I had a professor. Um, what was her name? Sarah Higley, um, mm. which I can reveal because, but for the longest time, she was keeping it a secret. She had a whole separate life. She was a medieval studies scholar um, by day and then wrote for Star Trek 
uh, the next generation and like and had a whole nother name with like an alter ego that wrote um, about like aliens and a- alien sex and things like that. And she had them completely separate. Like they were two things that were totally incompatible, like a serious scholar versus the supernatural aliens and stuff. Um, why, why do you think that we shut those two things and separate them apart so much? Like if you shared a poem like one of these two. Uh, to a literary magazine, they would say, well, you know, this belongs in Strange Horizons, maybe, and not a literary magazine. So, so why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I think the poetry world can be a little bit snobbish and pretentious and take itself very seriously and not 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 lighten up a bit. I mean, I could stand to lighten up a little more. Um, yeah, that. I mean, that's an excellent question. But, I, I mean, I do think, though, that um, it, it it does come out of that whole materialist mindset you know, that's accepted, you know, the scientific method and, you know, this is all there is and this is what we can prove. And so, you know, all of this other stuff, you're you're stupid or you're superstitious or you're misguided or, you know, whatever you want to put on it. If you kind of delve into that realm at all, you know, Mm -hmm. serious people don't do that. It was conformist, I guess. Yeah, I think I think we, you know, we ditch religion, then make a religion out of science. And there's this scientism religion that just dominates and crushes all mystery because there can't be mystery in in the material. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, Well, we're we're sort of up on time, but let's wrap it up with the other poem um, that you have. And and this was uh, based on our prompt. So it was Museum of Ghosts, uh, fresh, hot off the press. Um, Do you want to introduce this at all or just share it? Yeah. I mean, I was I was inspired by this prompt. It was uh, to write about a a museum. Um, You shared one of yours. And I just thought this um, one of the things that we've done in, in an early episode on Shadowland and, and one of the things that interests me when you talk about ghosts is that there are these different categories of ghosts. You know, there are ones where you, it's almost like an imprint um, that just keeps playing over and over and over again. And, and, and you know, there are discussions that this is just something it's kind of like like a photograph or, or an imprint in time. You know, that this isn't actually an entity nothing personal about it. Um and, you know, so there are these different tropes when you talk about ghosts. And I was thinking about that, um, you know, there are the ghosts that are there because they want to convey a message. And a lot of times um, what what really interests me are these little details that come out, like I was talking about with the near-death experience um, uh, episode. One of the things you hear over and over again is things appearing in corners, and in kind of this like liminal space. Um, and we talked about this on the on the podcast before, but um, I'll, the witching hour is 3 a.m. And it's the in-between space. It's between nighttime and morning um, when someone's on their deathbed and they see something and they're looking up at the corner of the room and they see someone. I mean, you hear these stories over and over and over again to the point where it feels like and, and these are coming from like hospice nurses and family members and things like that. Like there's, there's something going on here. What is it? Um, and even just like this notion of autumn and October, it's this in between kind of liminal space point. So anyway, long winded way to introduce this poem. It's called the museum of ghosts. What there is to see here hangs primarily in corners caught like the parchment moth awaiting her fate Their misty silhouettes skim along the edges of your sight, disperse the instant that you turn. In the hall of shadows, 
cloaked and faceless figures peer from marble pillars or the archway of a door. You'll hear familiar voices calling from a distant wing. Never follow, but feel their whisper shivering your ear. As we ascend the winding stair, stay keen for fingers snatching at your ankles from the dark between the slats. And here in the dust-swirled attic, sweet with wood rot, windless as a tomb, they hover over deathbeds in the corners of the room. Only fading eyes could see them stir. But look, the windows crimp tight as a coffin lid, and still the curtains sure. Yeah, that's great. That's the Museum of Ghosts and a great way to transition us into the spooky open lines. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for being a guest. And hopefully, you know, I could see, you know, all your episodes. (laughs) If each episode was a poem, you'd have a whole book of poems about your uh, Shadowland podcast. You could call it Shadowland. And then uh, that would be perfect branding. Yeah. So so tell us about Shadowland, though. Where people can find it? How often do you do it? And um, what do you have up next with it? Uh, well, we just released a new episode and it's on dark, uh, black eyed entities. You know, you've heard of the black eyed kids. This mm-hmm. is expands it a bit into some other things that people have seen, which I think are pretty terrifying and Halloween appropriate. Um, but we we're doing it now monthly, maybe a little less when we started out, it was, we kind of had more time. And especially when, when the pandemic hit and we were cooped up in the house, we were doing it, you know, like twice a month. Um, but yeah, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, um, Spotify, you know, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, any, anything, um, Audible, um, Amazon, all of it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and also, if anybody has any paranormal stories, we're going to be putting together a campfire um, listeners episode. We're going to be like reading spooky stories that people have submitted. So we love, love to get some more submissions um, and it's shadowlandpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and you can DM us there if that's easier um, or Facebook or however you want to hit me up. Um, that would be great. Like would love yeah. some new spooky stories and yours too. I want to hear yours Tim. Excellent. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's a great, great uh, podcast. I've listened to a bunch of the episodes. It's really fun stuff um, and, and really well done. So I do encourage everybody to check it out and, and contribute to the uh, open lines type uh, segment you have as the campfire stories get rolled out. Yeah. Thanks for being a guest, Christine. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Um, love your work and I uh, really love the podcast too. Yep, take care. That was Christina Callery uh, once again, and uh, she's author of Adult Night at Skate World and co-host of the Shadowland Paranormal Podcast. Uh, you can find more at ChristinaCallery.com. It's spelled just like it sounds. Christina, uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, Callery with a K, K-A-L-L-E-R-Y.com. Um, and that is where you can find all of her stuff. So do check it out. Now, I forgot to say at some point in the show, but do click the like button. If you haven't yet, uh, the show's not over yet. And if you could like it, that would be much appreciated. The more likes we get, the more it's spread around through the algorithms of the various platforms that hear this. There's about, f- you know, one fifth of the people who, have clicked, uh, who are watching right now have clicked the like button. So don't forget to do that. Now we're going to go to open lines. And it's our spooky Halloween open lines. And uh, how it's going to work is this. We have the prompt, of course, but you can also share anything spooky that you would like. So um, here we go. This is how it is going to work. Uh, So the prompt was to write a poem about a fear, uh, but you can also share anything that's scary. And if you'd like to do that, all you have to do is join on the Zoom link. I'm going to put the Zoom link in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, There is one deployed. Here is the other 
deployed. Um, there we go. And uh, if you'd like to join us, uh, join us on the Zoom and email the poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Um, and then uh, email the poem there so I can share it and, and read it on the sc- and show it on the screen as you read. Uh, if you don't have anything to share, though, the stream continues. This is just if you want to share a poem. So otherwise, keep watching, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Let's start out by talking to our prompt poems editor, Katie Dozier. Hey, Katie. Hello. Yeah. How are you doing? I should have said boo. It was my opportunity <laughs> to say boo. You should have. We missed our chance. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, so the poem, the prompt this week was to write about a fear. We wanted to do something that was sort of theme-ish, but didn't take over Halloween because with a prompt poem series, um, you know, if we published a poem that was based on Halloween um in you know in november it would seem like late and so we wanted something that would still be appropriate in november but would work today and you picked um, a poem about a fear um Mm -hmm. so what did you uh, what did you come up with well first i wrote about eight apparently i have a lot of fears to go on (laughs) so it's a prompt that uh, that inspired a lot but um my fear as i get into is um just about time. There's never enough, you know, time. And so I'll get into Maybe I should have said that after I read the poem, but oh, well, you guys will forgive me. <laughs> okay. well, I fear it's spoiling the poem. <laughs> that would be definitely a poet's fear. One of those poets nightmares. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is called that time I washed my watch. I'm terrified to consider all the time I've sullied by consorting with socks. My mismatched thoughts are strewn behind the dryer, which never finishes until I forget to check. I've grown so accustomed to its buzz that now I'm just the fuzz, a spark in the lint trap. Did you know that we would see the sun for eight whole minutes before it all went dark? I bet you did. When I think of how I'd spend that chunk of cheddar, I imagine hugging every person so hard that I break their ribs. They don't mind, so we break the rest of them by laughing. The point is, dramatic irony. The point is, my love sticks to your ribs. The point is, I don't have time to comprehend that at any given moment, the world may have already ended. I've never owned a watch and don't intend to start winding down, but I know this. The best time can do is jump inside its own hat, and you can watch that. Once, I stared into my baby's eyes as her irises threaded new veins, blue rivers, The world willed itself to wait, and it will again, while you turn into a white bed with your lover, precipitate the clouds, and fuck the laundry. May what wants to rain be all that rains, and by the way, that won't wash out. Yeah, excellent poem. I love the way the playfulness combines with the fear uh, in that uh, the... The chunk of cheddar is a great line in particular. Um, yeah. and, and it works, uh, too, as a great transition between uh, the Poetry Space episodes. So we had the Poe episode last week on the Poetry Space, which is on Thursdays over on X. I'm just going to say X, I, I, whatever. But um, We need to accept it's X at this we point. We have to accept it's actually it. X. <laughs> yeah, we definitely do. <laughs> so over on X, uh, we do the Poetry Space. We did Poe, and then next week is Playfulness, which is going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And this combines the two. I don't know if that was an accident. Um, but it worked really well in that regard. Uh, coming off the Poe episode, do you have any sort of general thoughts about Poe? Like, did you learn something you didn't know about Poe in the in the process of going through for a week? 
I think that I focused way in on his musicality in a way that I hadn't before. And I also think I've been too shy using alliteration in my own poetry. Like he just owned it. You know, he could have four words that started with the same sound right by each other. And it kind of emboldened me. And I actually did, uh, I tried to write a bunch of haiku in his voice also, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, it, it was really interesting. And I, I didn't know, I don't know, I didn't, I hadn't explored his, his background very much. I knew some of his poems, but not a whole lot about him. He was a really interesting person. So to check out that poetry space, uh, if you haven't missed it, it's also available everywhere uh, your podcasts are. It's like an hour chatting about poetry. Um, and I think you have more poetry coming up in a little bit, Katie. So we'll come back to you for that. I think I'll share my prompt poem now. And I meant to do the how I meant to show a picture of this house. Um, and now I can't because I'm logged in as rattle on Facebook streaming. So I think I'll, I can't actually show it cause it's, it's, I posted on Facebook, which is the only place I have a picture of this house. Um, but this, the, the ghost story. So I struggled with, uh, with writing this ghost story, um, uh, because I'm just, I'm like I said, I'm not really a narrative poet. And I think it works better just telling it as a ghost story. So I was really struggling today trying to get this into a way that would work. I was trying to do a um, another alliterative verse poem uh, because I liked that last week. I felt like that would be a good storytelling way to make it sort of epically legendary. And it just wasn't working for me in the right way. So I think, but but I have the poem here. I think I'll tell you the ghost story um, because it was, prom- and then that'll be your introduction to the poem, which is a variation on that. But um but so so anyway, the story is this. So when I was uh, five and six years old, my parents were separated. I lived in this old house on Henrietta Street in Rochester, New York. It was built in like 1880 or so. Um, you know, and it was like rotting, really. Like everything was like falling apart. The roofs were sagging. We had to replace a bunch of the beams before we could even live in. It wasn't husp- or habitable. Habitable? Is that a word? Habitable? <laughs> when we uh, <laughs> when we moved in, and um, and. And, and, you know, my, my, I think my dad bought it for like $12,000 or something. That's how bad it was. And it had no central heating either. Um, and so it was just this creaky old house, these really tall, weird Victorian type windows. Um, and there was no heat except for this potbelly stove. So in the winter, I would uh, sleep on the couch to stay warm. And my dad was in like the room right next to the living room. It was like a front room um, because that was the only two houses we could or the only rooms in the house we could keep warm. And uh, we also had, since the windows were like single pane and so drafty, we had these storm shutters that were always closed and locked. And then we had this like plastic we put over the window um, to keep the drafts out because it was a really drafty house too. And so all night he'd tend the potbelly stove, like come in occasionally when it went out and we'd keep the house warm that way, but it was still cold. And, um, and so I was sleeping on the couch one night and I had this dream that I woke up from. And I just shouted, they're coming in through the windows. They're coming in through the windows. And we had a bunch of, it was a bad neighborhood too. And so we had people that would like break into the house all the time. And, um, and so my dad was like used to like worrying about that. And he'd come running with a shotgun. So he comes running with a shotgun, like, oh, someone's breaking into the house. And, uh, and there was nobody there. And he pulls back the curtains. like, see, you're just having a nightmare. There's nobody there. Don't worry about it. And then in between the plastic sheet that's over the window and the storm shutters that are locked shut, the window in the middle was open. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, and that is a really creepy thing. And as a true story, creeped my dad completely out. Like we had to cut off the plastic to close it. And it definitely wasn't closed all winter. Um, you know, I mean, it, I mean, it was definitely closed before in the winter. Like at some point since we looked out the window last, it had gone from being closed to being open. And uh, that was really creepy. So that is my ghost story and a true story. 
in that little creepy house on Henrietta Street. And I wish I could show you the picture because the picture from Google Street View looks really creepy too still, even in 2010 or whenever they took it. But anyway, this is my alliterative verse poem based on that ghost story because there's a lot more to it too. You know, a lot has to do with my dad's PTSD and things like that as well. So maybe that comes up in the poem, but here we go. This is Henrietta Street. Let's take a look. Here you go, Henrietta Street. The house was 100 years old, held up by rotting beams and buckling floorboards. The ceiling sagged with a soft weight of even a child. Every evening, lying on the couch, a little lump of boy in blanket, trying to be warm. That was me. My father making fire, pitching logs into a potbelly stove. And it was warm for a short while, in the way that sleep was worn for a while, until a tiny sound tears a hole in its cloth. Eyes closed, consciousness returns to the soul it was tied to. That's when I awoke, the loosely woven sheet of my sleep still a shroud. I couldn't see, but someone was shouting, the windows, coming in through the windows. That house was peeling paint and pounding footfalls overhead, my father running with a shotgun, someone screaming, me, but no one was there, no, nothing but air. That is the story. And so you see how the story didn't all get into the poem. And I just couldn't, I wrote it like it twice as long and I was boring myself. And so I cut it down to where it wanted to go and let the poem be itself. So that's it. But that's the whole story. So that is my ghost story. Um, let's see. Uh, do you want to do, Katie, to not more transition, do you want to do your poku? Because I think that would be fun too. I would love to. Can I call them poku? I really want to, but I just keep calling everything ku. And I, I know I've worn out that idea, but I just want to keep going with well, everything's well, a coup. What, that's what the haiku people do. <laughs> Everything is a coup. There's a sci-ku, there's sci-fi coup, there's uh, you know, all sorts okay. of coup. So yeah, it could be What about a cuckoo? A cuckoo could be like a really nonsensical haiku, maybe. I think, I think you just invented a genre. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what I, what I did with this was um, I actually used, controversially, ChatGPT to try to parse out the words that Poe uses most that aren't like common words. And I looked at that list as a way to inspire me because naturally I don't go towards melodramatic words. I trained myself not to. <laughs> um, so I used that as kind of a way. And the first one is a poker type one. So I'm excited about that. Okay. So I don't know. I, I named this haiku sequence too, so forgive me. If Poe wrote haiku... Gambling, my telltale heart on queens. Midnight moon, the plutonium mass of my heart. Another vine creeps up this iron gate. I love her. Blown out candles, her eyes flash red. Coughing under countless crows, I cry murder. A smokestack rises in the fog. Dream within a dream. Yeah, excellent. Some great poku there. Thanks for sharing those, Katie. A great way to transition into uh, the open lines. And um, so anything you have to share. So usually um, we say anything uh, that you want to share, feel free to share. But this is for open lines for scary type poems or poems based on a fear. And um, and it, moving forward, I should say just a little program note. We're going to be focusing on the prompts from now on. And so uh, the, the prompt open lines are become the prompt lines, starting with the next episode, because we've had such great prompt poems um, coming up. And I, and I just like the cohesion that having that that, that does. So um, for tonight, it's uh, the fear-based prompt poems or anything scary and Halloween-ish. In the future, it will usually just be, unless we have some other category like that we want to do, um, just the prompt poems. So anyway, let's see what you have tonight. Let's jump right in with Dick Westheimer, who is first in line. Hey, Dick. 
Well, I was about to bail because I have neither of those. I have a <laughs> poet's respond poem. So why don't you move on to a, a, a poet that is more with the tenor of the evening? All right. Well, I, you know, the, we're going to be going for like another hour. So if you have, uh, write another poem really quick. <laughs> okay. Okay. If I do, I will jump back on. Excellent. Well, thanks, Dick. Sure. Bye. It was a Dick Westheimer. And of course, if we, uh, we'll see how it goes doing it this way. But uh, if you have, yeah, so if you don't have anything creepy, just hop off the Zoom and watch the creepy stuff. But let's see, uh, we have a lot of people in line. I think it's going to be a great open line. So let's go to uh, Nancy Sobinick. Okay. I'm going to read um, a creepy one. Creepy silly. It's called Phantasm. Excellent. A chill has wrapped the night in velvet stoles and crept along the bare and frigid floor. The dripping faucet plinks into a bowl, a metronome whose sound I do deplore. Weird phantoms snap a towel inside my head, and terror shakes my waking dream ajar. Where once I lay and slumbered, now instead, the fragments of my thoughts and abattoir. When down the hall I think I hear a sound, a shuffling step, a tapping in drywall. Chimera of two minds has come unbound. That which I think is real keeps me in thrall. Then suddenly a light slips past the house. Backlights back the ghost, a silhouetted mouse. Oh, excellent. I always love a sonnet, and that is a especially good sonnet for the open line tonight. Thanks for kicking it out with a good one, Nancy. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much. That was uh, Nancy Sobinick with uh, Phantoms. And let's, uh, yeah, so so uh, let's see, Aiden and uh, and who else was, was before? And uh, Odd Writings mentioned that they have uh, fear poems that aren't creepy. That's fine. Anything prompt-based is great for the uh, prompt lines. Let's go to Zachary Honeycutt, who has been chomping at the bit for this episode for many a moon. Well, no pun intended, even. That's literally true. Zachary, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I am doing great. How are you guys doing? How are you doing, Tim? Great. It's great to see you for uh, for the spooky open lines. I think you did a poem last year, too. And, of course, we've had a bunch in the interim that would apply. Uh, what have you got for us? Well, I actually have a very creepy high bin that I made out of one of my favorite ghost stories that I've ever written. It's probably the creepiest thing that I've ever read on the show, and I'm really looking forward to performing it tonight for you guys. Well, I'm a little scared if there's a, <laughs> if it's the creepiest thing, because you have read some creepy things. Um, let's hear it. Uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. The Locker. What is insanity? It is not a tangible thing. It is used to describe something or some quality that is irregular. It is a characteristic that stands out among those of the natural world. It exists outside the realm of the norm of reality, but is observed by those that are bound to reality. What is insanity? It is merely a label created by that observer bound to reality that is used to explain a phenomenon that is different or misunderstood or unknown. At this desperate time in my life, I, Arthur Benjamin Ridley, have many questions on the subject, but the one that takes precedence over all the others in my mind is, 
does a lunatic know he is insane? I know how to prove I'm not mad, realizing what the ultimate test of my sanity was some time ago. I have to do it. I just have to. I keep telling myself. I have to open the locker. What am I talking about? You may ask yourself. What fantasy am I referring to? Is this object, this thing, this locker, a figment of my imagination? Is it something I create to fixate my madness upon? What is this locker? It is the reason why I think the way I do, enveloping myself with these reflections that barter logic and reason for paranoia. The locker is the source of my madness. And if I can only open it to see what's inside, I can prove my sanity to you, hopefully. For I know something very strange and bizarre, some dark and sinister force, some hidden evil exists within the confines of that locker, waiting to reveal itself to me. Perhaps some demonic creature lurks in the shadows of that locker, possessing my mind and the minds of the other students, my fellow classmates. You see, if I am insane, well, I am not alone. Other students notice the locker too, and even inquire about it. They ask me, fearfully passing in front of its metal gaze, why strange things happen around the locker, misunderstood things, things that go against the laws of reality, insane things. You're wondering what these things are. I'll tell you, though it will add to the weight of my madness and yours. I am not positive how the locker decides to haunt the minds of the other students, but I can tell you how it haunts mine. Every day, before and after lunch, I have to pass that evil force. And whenever I do, I hear voices. I'll say it again. I hear voices so distinct and clear. It is like the people uttering the words of these voices are right there beside me. Do you know what they say? They keep repeating the horrible thing I have to do, warning me not to do it. Every time I pass the locker, they say, don't open it. This I know makes sense, but I'm not going to listen to their reason. I haven't told you about the worst characteristics of the locker and perhaps my insanity. No, I've been holding back with good reason. For I observe all the other students and how they face this problem. The locker, the evil of it, the curiosity of what that evil is, inspires many others to do what I'm about to do. Every now and then, my companions and I will hear of some brave soul or lunatic soul that plans to look inside the locker. But when that soul does, oh, that soul never returns. It's so horrible. Every person that decides to look inside that locker will vanish. It's as though he was never there at all and had never searched the locker. But I know better. In all my insanity, I tell you, every time a student disappears, I hear a new voice, being the voice of that very student, the person that is missing. 
So at last, the time has come. Now that you have heard my insanity and can make your own opinion of it, I progress onwards. Slowly and cautiously, I approach the evil thing, that horrible spirit of doom and gloom that is the locker. I feel sweat drip down my brow, moistening the texture of my skin. I feel the hump, the thump of my heart in my chest, the sound probably becoming audible to any passerby. I feel as though I can see within the locker. What I see are two bright red menacing eyes watching me as I approach them. Finally, I reach the locker, which revels in my displeasure and emits a myriad of voices adding to my horror. Ignoring them, I focus on the metal lock, which is unlocked. It's always unlocked. I stare at the ugly thing. It is full of dents, its metal skin severely bruised. I take a long, deep breath. It's now or never. I say as I pull it open, I gasped. Inside the locker are the cut-up body parts of the students that have disappeared. There are arms, legs, hands, feet, eyeballs, all in pieces, piled up along the metal walls. You think I will scream, but I don't. I laugh. I sigh with relief, my spirits rejuvenated. I am happy, not because of the dismembered classmates, but because I faced my fears, and furthermore, because I, Arthur Benjamin Ridley, am not insane. I hear a low footstep behind me and turn around. Consumed by a state of pure terror, I stare at what I realize to be the owner of the locker. Now that you've discovered my secret, he says fiendishly, it's time for you to go inside the locker too. And so a new voice is added to the myriad of voices doomed to the evil locker. My voice. And here's the haiku. The cold metal skin of the hot rotting body. How long? It's missing. <laughs> well, that is great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Kind of a, a short story worked into there, but it actually got pulled off as a as a hybrid. I think you invented a new genre. Maybe we'll call it a scarebin. What do you think? Scarebin. <laughs> I think that that sounds great too. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Zachary. You did not disappoint uh, with the the creepiness of that one. <laughs> I've been waiting to get that off my chest, guys, all month. <laughs> That's the locker hybrid or the locker scarebin. Uh, thanks, thanks, Zach. Always a pleasure. See you guys next week. Yep. This is Zachary Honeycutt once again. Uh, let's go to Tom Barlow next. <clears throat> Thanks, Jim. Hey, Tom. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you. This is uh, not a very frightening, but it is a, the, um, I think it fits within the, the, the regulations here. It's called Revenant. Sounds good. Let's hear it. My late wife starts our conversation as I prepare breakfast for the kids with a question mark in the pancake batter, I've dribbled onto the griddle to test its heat. I've been expecting her to return ever since the day we first sent her into the fire, for she never allowed me the last word. So I drizzle Zoe with batter onto the griddle. 
When I flip that pancake over, it looks just like a kiss. I write, miss you in response with the batter. And when I turn over those words, it clearly reads, miss you too. I begin to reply, you plus me forever with a batter, but the kids notice I'm acting oddly and give me that look that means they too are starving and not for pancakes. So I ditch our conversation. I know that if I, they catch on, nothing I can do will prevent the burns they will receive from hugging that hot griddle until it is again cold and lifeless. Me? I have the oven mitts. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I've Revenant by Tom Barlow. Excellent uh, Halloween uh, type poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, once again, Tom Barlow with Revenant. Um, next, let's go to, let's see, let's go to Sharon Ferrante. Oh, I had to get out of the chat again. Hi. Hey, Sharon. Yeah, good to see Hi. you, Sharon. Good to see everybody. Oh, my God, Christina was great. Thank you for that interview. Oh, great. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's one of those topics. I wonder <laughs> if it's like I like a little too much <laughs> for the time, <laughs> but uh, but it was enjoyable for me. <laughs> I loved it. Her poems were great. The interview was great. Thank you so much. Um, I didn't write about a fear, but I, I wrote a bunch of haku, mm -hmm. Halloween coup. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got to put, I can put, well, I took some out because I had a lot of them. Um, but the only problem is uh, most of them, uh, m my humor just kind of, you know, went in there. <laughs> I could, I, <laughs> well, that's great, too. I think a couple of Katie's uh, I, are funny, too. So I think, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. This show is great. Oh, thanks. Okay. Well, let's hear it. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get go. Blood moon until the werewolf is done. Halloween ball. Frankenstein asks for my arm. Ablaze your guts in the oven, jack-o'-lantern. Friendly zombie, the gift of maggot pie. Halloween party. The dog bites a vampire in a dark alley. He follows her scent, the hunger. Midnight before my next feeding, I hang with bats. Close up, how striking her fangs. Oh, those are just great. I love all those. I mean, it's such great Halloween haiku. And what are we going to call those? Like um, Halloween coup. Halloween coup. We're getting a lot of syllables in there. Halloween coup. <laughs> but those are excellent. I love those. I don't even know which one's my favorite. Maybe the kind of blaze your guts in the oven jack-o'-lantern. I love that. And I love the dog vampire and the maggot pie. Oh, those are also great. Thanks for sharing those, Sharon. The maggot pie. I've been sharing them. The maggot pie got some, ew, ew, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, that, well, that's the whole point. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I had so much fun writing them. Thank uh, you. Well, you can tell. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it, Sharon. Thanks. Thank you. Yep. Thank good night and a happy Halloween. <laughs> oh, thank you. You too. All right, let's go to uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein next. Hey, hey thanks, Paul. Tim. Yeah. Hey, everyone. It's a great show tonight. Uh, yeah, that was a really fun guest. I could relate to a lot of that, especially... Uh, 
being a burnout in the 1980s, <laughs> although not in Detroit. Yeah, but, well, um, you know, Rochester. Where did you grow up, Paul? I grew up in North Jersey, right outside of Manhattan, just south of Manhattan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, so that's all Rust Belt starts kind of there and moves all the way over to Detroit. So, <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um, okay. So I have tonight uh, this piece. It's an older piece uh, that I dug up that is um, based on what was most likely a dream. Um, uh, yeah, the um, going to sleep uh with uh with a person and then um having this experience and then waking up and the person was gone and the earrings were left on the table and um everything else i assume was uh just my imagination interesting well let's hear it go ahead and it's not really a poem it's it's uh like i said it's pretty old so it's very different than what i write these days it's more prose but um i'll just get right into it yeah looking forward to it yeah go ahead the nightstand drawer of forgotten earrings. The woman in my bed screams. She points at the small black child crouched in the corner. A small black girl. Not black like that. Black like black. Black like wet charcoal and seaweed like a half-human primordial lizard oozing slime. Her skin catching the lamplight as it crouched in the corner, facing the wall, whispering to itself and scratching at the floor. Ignore her, I say to the woman in my bed. She can't hurt us. I get up, I walk to the corner and shove its ungodly head down towards the floor hard, hard enough to knock her over, knowing that she can't be knocked over. Leave, I say, get the fuck out of here. But her feet stay put as if nailed to the floor. She's whispering, hissing something reptilian. She is comfortable with being shoved, hit with lamps and boiling water, burned by cigarettes. She feels nothing. She just scratches at the floor, whispering something. The woman in my bed gets up, terrified. In a panic, she begins to dress. Please, I say, don't go. She can't hurt us. She won't go until she wants to, but she can't hurt us, please. But the woman who is in my bed leaves and in her rush forgets her earrings on the nightstand. So I put them in the drawer with all the others. I lie down on the bed, light a cigarette and turn the volume on the television up as loud as it will go so I can't hear the scratching and the whispering. Then there's a pounding on the wall from next door. I'm telling you for the last time, turn down that goddamn television. Oh, that was great, Paul. I, I would disagree with you that that's prose. I think uh, people ask all the time what the difference between poetry and prose is or what a po prose poem is. And it's definitely a prose poem with all those all that rhyme and alliteration and rhythm going on in there. It's great. I, was, I didn't even know it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you got like the, I don't know, there's all sorts of things, uh, like the leaves and the please. You know, there's all sorts of rhymes in there. Great rhythm, too. It's great. Excellent work, Paul. Thanks for sharing it. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein with The Nightstand Drawer of Forgotten Earrings. Great title, too. Uh, let's go next. Let's find some first-time callers. Or uh, Let's go to Clayton Clark. Hi there. Hey, Clayton. Good to see you. Great night. Yeah, it definitely is. I love the Halloween the time it. of year. It's a wonderful time of year. Mine might not be that creepy, but um, let's see what happens. It's about fear. Yeah, perfect. Well, that is, you know, all fears apply. So let's see yours. <laughs> it's called cosmicophobia, but I think the actual name is cosmophobia. Mm. But Psych Times called it cosmicophobia, and I liked it better. I like so, that uh, too. 
<laughs> so cosmicophobia. Psych Times calls it the irrational fear of cosmic phenomenon. And goes on to explain that just thinking about the universe may cause pain and panic attacks in some. Irrational seems pretty rational to me to be overwhelmed by the dark energy and matter and all that expanse, or by my neighbor across the street who stalks her driveway like a live gargoyle in stretchy pants, always trying to load me up with her absurd abundance of Meyer lemons. I'm afraid to go out. Imagine space full of such things, even after death, with nowhere to hide. It could go on, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and all a person would have to hold on to is the fact that they were very, very rational and right as they toil, tumble, and flail forever in the cosmic, ununderstandable, between and beyond the sparkly stars. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. That was excellent. Cosmicophobia. And it's funny, I was talking about um, you know, being afraid that there's nothing more to the reality, but equal to that fear somehow is that there is something more. <laughs> and I was thinking about that even as I was saying it. I was like, wait a minute, but it's also I don't know. And once you get down to it, um it's all <laughs> it's all frightening either way. Yeah, excellent right. poem. Thanks for sharing that, Clayton. Thanks for tonight. Yep, thank you. Clayton Clark with a cosmicophobia. Uh, let's uh, go to. Um, should I make something I got out of line? Let's go to uh, Joe Cottonwood next. Okay. Hi, Joe. Um, my, I, I wrote about fear, but it, it's a very specific fear. It's fear of flying. Ah, okay. And um, as I got into it, I realized that my fear is isn't near what other people's fear is. So the, the poem sort of moved me in a different direction. Well, that's anyway, a good sign for a good poem. So, yeah. yeah it, the poem took me uh, kind of by the collar and moved me around. Ah, oh, it's the best kind. I'm excited. <laughs> okay. This is called JetBlue Flight 615, which I recently was on. JetBlue Flight 615. Her fingers tremble like feathers ruffled by breeze. You, too, feel your bones are not meant to fly, but this woman in the middle seat with naked nerves begins to hum and apologize. Mm, please excuse the music. Mm, it's like hiccups when you get scared, can't stop. Mm. Jets are damn noisy, but you hear gospel hymns. Fleet, free-floating moonlight sonata, followed by fly me to the moon, and then more, more. She is a Spotify of hums. From New York to San Francisco, she pauses only to chew pretzels or drink water while your death grip on the armrest loosens you can tap on your keyboard toward your deadlines. At touchdown, she apologizes again. Mm, thank you for putting up with me. And you realize you've been smiling. Not outwardly, not a grin, 
but a softening of jaw through this journey, thanks to the power of mmming, a lighter state of mind, how the mockingbird takes wing. Oh, I love that ending, Joe. That was great. Uh, JetBlue Flight 615. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Really great turn in that poem. Thank you. Yeah, Joe Cottonwood, once again. Uh, let's go to Jennifer Fossil next. Uh, I think Jennifer's been on before, but not for a while. Hey, Jennifer. Hi. I loved that last poem. I was just trying to comment, <laughs> but I'll finish <laughs> yeah, that Yeah, it minute. was a good one. I love Anytime they sort of take you by the collar, I know that's going to be a good sign. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I decided to write about loss, which is, um, I guess, my number one fear. Um, and, you know, there's the anticipatory loss of, you know, fearing people you, you will lose at some point or or may lose. And then there's kind of the, the fear of the despair for all the, those that you've lost. Um, and so that's what I wrote about. And then I really appreciated the um, conversation with Christina because um, I think, you know, you were really kind of going back and forth between the the disbelief and the belief. And, and I find myself doing the same thing. And I think for me, kind of what comes between those two sometimes is memory and remembering. So that's what my, my poem is about. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And well said, too. Yeah, let's hear it. Thank you. Anything you could want. We'll get us a mausoleum and we'll come out at night and grill on the patio, Aunt Grace decreed. I was a kid then and giggled at the thought of our skeletons clacking and skittering in the muggy air of a summer night. What did I know of death but the visit to the cemetery on decoration day, running amongst graves as my grandmothers picked their way carefully down the hill to lay pots of geraniums above long dead husbands. No sadness that I could sense, at most a mellowed remembrance of men who spent their week's pay at the beer garden, men who left for a loaf of bread and returned three days later with sour breath and no bread. We'll go get lunch at Midway after we finish up here, my mother said. What do they have, I asked. Oh, anything you could want, she told me. I tried to imagine that anything and grew anxious with the void that rose before me. Like what, I persisted. Oh, like a hot dog, mom said. Won't be long before I'm here pushing up daisies, Lala joked. We laughed, and I saw fields of them, their sunny faces ringed with white. Anything you could want. Hot dogs burning on the grill, potato salad growing warm in the sticky air of a day loping toward evening, Mamaw with her fly swatter, the tang of mosquito spray spritzed on bare legs. Bare legs sticky and grooved with the webbed patterns of lawn chairs cold slices of watermelon, black seeds, the only nuisance in sweet pink flesh. The promise of ice cream from the hand-cranked bucket, the wonder of how salt and ice and sweat can yield such magic. Adult chatter and dusk creeping in, sit a spell, the spell of the grown-ups' voices that hum and drone of safety and things not understood, dreading the moment the spell is broken and the women start gathering up paper plates for the trash, christening the grass with watered-down cups of Kool-Aid and iced tea. Forty years on, and we are a family of ghosts, gathered like the remains of a midsummer feast, some in urns by the door, others in a high-rise vault, an efficiency apartment for the dearly departed, others in the ground, bones shrouded in the lacework dress, chosen when chemo failed, still lugging heavy pots of geraniums each May, a sensible flower, douse it with one last drink from the plastic jug and I'm on my way, no daisies that I can see, anything you could want. 
kindly white bones, onion skin, leaves, shadow play, granite vacancy. Oh, well, that's a great, great hyphen. I mean, we get a lot of great hyphens these days. Thanks so much for sharing that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was Jennifer Fossil with uh, Fear. Or no, Anything You Could Want is the title. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, let's go to Brian O'Sullivan next. Now, Brian was today's poet on Rattle.com. So a good day, for Brian. Good to see you, Brian. Uh-huh. Thanks so much for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, I love that poem, and, and that was a prompt poem too. We should, you know, mention because that was it from. Uh, was. I had to look it up because I didn't know, uh, you know, who the, the actual guest was. I remember it was someone else that came up with it, and it was Sonia mm-hmm. Greenfield. So she was in, in mm-hmm. January. She had a show, um, and she Great wanted one. you to Google um, if you need whatever it was. If you need, it was Google like if you yeah, yeah if you don't something and then um, one letter and then fill in the rest it was great. Yeah, really exactly. It was uh, it was if you don't, that's what it is. If you don't, right. and then one letter, and then you and write a poem right. about that, and so you got fall, and uh, excellent sestina coming out of that one. But what do you have for tonight for the uh, spooky open lines? Oh, I have um, a poem about my deep seated fear of reading a poem on the rattlecast. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people can relate. It's hard for me to. Um, like, like to me, it's like nothing, you know, it's like no big deal. We're just hanging out, having poems, but people always tell me that it's nerve wracking and especially early on. So I totally understand. Um, but only reality. through other people. Cause for me, it just seems like, why would it be nervous? I'm, <laughs> we're just hanging out, sharing poems. <laughs> I think it's important for me to say, I mean, in reality, <laughs> absolutely the nicest, safest, most supportive place to read a poem. Oh, it's just a nightmare version for fun. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I am reading my fear poem on the Rattlecast, and suddenly I realize that my title is a little long and kind of on the nose, and that the whole premise might be a bit too meta, and that in the middle of the thing, there is a bad 575 haiku that doesn't even have a cut, no cut. And that's all, and that it's all as cliched as the Sestina is long, and that I repeat and that too often and that my throat is dry and my voice is cracking and I'm stubbing over my words, and that the images veer from non-existent to over the top, and that somehow the poem at once twists and turns like a bag of squirrels and lies flat and turnless upon the page. My words drop and splatter like rotten pumpkins filled with Limburger cheese, and the silences between words hiss, rattle, and bite. I finish reading my fear poem, Katie says nothing. Dick Westheimer's kind face has vanished from Zoom, leaving behind a message saying, after hearing this poem, I no longer like poetry. Odd writings post a multidimensional palindrome declaring in every direction that I suck. Even Sharon Ferrante looks, and I did not think that this was possible, perturbed. Almost all you gentle poets cry out to the muses to smite me down and reject my poem from the anthology of life. I begin to worry that I have been offensive. Only Nate Jacobs is still smiling, but his beard has transmogrified into tentacles, reaching through my screen to drag me down to hell. Tim raises an eyebrow, says, interesting poem, and moves on. This is what I was afraid of. <laughs> I was trying. I was going to try to say interesting poem. <laughs> and then, I couldn't. I couldn't keep it. And that was really funny, Brian. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, that was really fun. <laughs> Read. 
Yep. <laughs> that was Brian O'Sullivan with uh, I am reading my fear poem on the Rattlecast. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. <laughs> Um, next up, let's go. I, I think I, I'm not sure if Rosalind Stroll has been on before, maybe once. Uh, hey, Rosalind. Hi. That was just a, a glitch on the iPad. Sorry. Uh, perfect. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. I don't think you've been on before. Have you, or have you been on once or twice? No, I sent in a poem and a bet, and you read it. I couldn't figure out all the oh, all the how tos. Gotcha. <laughs> so okay. Finally, well, I'm so glad. Yeah. I'm finally moving from listener to reader. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. So, what do you have to share tonight? Well, um, a fear of mine is just fear of fear itself, and I uh, I could call this the gut poem, but it's really uh, I was so glad when polyvagal theory came out, and they justified that yes, indeed, I feel the dream in my gut before it, and sometimes it doesn't make it to my brain mm-hmm. and imagery. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to put that into words, and this is what came out. So it's, I just called it fear, but I could call it anything. In some dark grove under the bark, a fat grub curls to the shape of this sphere. The global head, the ignorant eyes, the long, soft swells are growing. It smells of butter. Such a sweet round loaf could be so easily bitten by some transient bird. I am I'm hoping it will leave this lodging though I cannot tell it so, how it would mock me, make me go beyond belief by some magician's trickery. They may yet burst from this sleek skin, a moth, a rabbit, a howling pack of wolves, something with bones and clearly stated edges. Meanwhile, it is ravenous with this one appetite and the hollow log of my belly is consumed in the greedy night. Oh, excellent ending, especially. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was a great poem, Rosalind. Thanks. Yeah, it was Fear. Fear. Uh, yeah, by Rosalind Stroll. Thanks, Galen. Once again, great to have you on. Hope you have come back soon. I'm glad that uh, all the technology works now. Um, next, let's go to Guy Chambers. Hi, Tim. Hey, Guy. Yeah, what you got for us? Yeah, I got a actually a prop poem here for a change here. Nice, so I, okay. started, I started reading this last week, and then then you, when you had this prompt, you hey, it fits right in. So ah, perfect, yeah. Yeah, I call this one tap. Crawling into bed on a cold, windy night, nobody in the house, not even a mouse. It's just a quiet night. Time to turn out the lights and sleep tight. A tap on the window. Then again, what's with that? A tap on the window. Is my friend trying to pull a crank on me? A tap on the window. They're trying to scare me because they know I'm all alone. A tap on the window. It's not going to work thinking it's a ghost. A tap on the window. Go away, buckles. A tap on the window. It's not them. A tap on the window. Maybe somebody's trying to break in. A tap on the window. Should should I hide underneath the covers? A tap on the window. Maybe I should hide maybe I should hide underneath the bed. A tap on the window. I my phone is downstairs. I, I can't phone the police. A tap 
on the window. Go away. I'm in here with a baseball bat. A tap on the window. Maybe I'll turn on the lights and pull the curtains back fast. A tap on the window. I'll surprise them and they'll take off. A tap on the window. Nobody's there. My heart starts thrashing. A tap on the window. Oh, he's just a branch in the wind tapping on the window. A tap on the window. What a relief. A tap on the window. I can turn out the lights out and go back to sleep. A tap on the window. Why was I thinking these crazy things? A tap on the window. I'm covering up and having a good night's sleep. A tap on the window. A tap on the window. A tap on the window. Oh my God! Oh my God! The window is slowly opening. <laughs> that. That's great. Thanks so much for that guy. I love the refrain yeah. of the tap on the window. Uh, yeah. It was a really great, creepy Halloween poem. That was excellent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just left the ending for everybody else to finish it off. Whatever they to be good. Yeah, I mean, I uh, when I moved into this house, it's a hundred years old, tiny little cabin. Yeah, and uh, we were joking with my kids about um, yeah, that there's a seance down there because there's this weird like yeah. basement with those like some chairs that they just have yeah. down there. And the first night, I was all alone. And I kept hearing little creaks and kept Creek, imagining, yeah. and I was like, no, don't be ridiculous. You're 43 years old. Stop doing that. But uh, it does. Yeah, your I'll... mind plays tricks on you in the middle of the night all alone, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> you get a little something like that, and your mind just goes off and just starts going out everywhere, you know. <laughs> it definitely hey. does. Thank you for sharing that, Guy. Yeah, you're welcome. Yep, take care. This guy Chambers with Tap. <laughs> Great title, too. Thanks, Guy. Thanks. Uh, next up, we have Odd Writings. Uh, George Pastana. Hey, George. Hey, Tim. How you doing? I'm doing great. Great to have you. Thanks for sticking around. I know it's been a long wait. It didn't mean to, you know, I don't want anybody to have to go last, but that's how the order goes. And you're not last. Nope. There's a couple of people left still, I should say, too. But how you doing? I'm doing fine. Okay, so this is a prompt poem, um, and I'll go ahead and start. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> then there were three. Outside the dark, the fireflies, meteor, our younger selves, jarring sparks, the stars foretold. We pluck leaves as autumn winter's cold. Inside the valley of the kings, the pharaohs fold their hands, deny the royal flesh the robbers claim to hold. We pluck leaves as autumn winter's cold. Beneath her cloudy cataracts, Niagara's uncontrolled. She pummels soft the limestone our parents mold. We pluck leaves as autumn winter's cold. I love the rhymes and repetition there. That was uh, George Pastana with, and then then there were three. And you know what, George? There are literally you're the there third three people left. So then there were three. That's the kind of thing we were talking about. On this, that's kind of yeah. scary. It's that that scary. stuff happens all the time with the Rattlecast, though. I'm not even joking. Like there's three people left. I had no idea that was going to be the poem, and then uh, there it is, and that it really creeps me out. And it, maybe subconsciously, I knew that was going to be the title, and then not even knowing it but but i was going in order so i don't know it just doesn't make sense it's freaky well, um and it's not the first time and by by a long shot well that's very cool thanks thanks for having me on and uh i'll log off and scoot on over to uh the other uh uh the other one where i can see the uh the poems so i yeah. get, to, get, get to read the last three so that's cool <laughs> excellent right, yeah, much everybody. better over there thanks george always a pleasure as a George Pastana with Then There Were Three, so strangely. Okay. Um, and last up, Dick Westheimer did come back. 
he has something for us on the uh, spooky, spooky angle. Hey, Dick, how you doing? I'm doing fine. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been thinking about this fear thing and spookiness, and there's some, like, missing gene in me. Like, I can be scared of things in real time, but mm -hmm. I can't imagine. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so, it... like, I don't, you know, like this Art Bell stuff, <laughs> it's like, you know, I'll analyze every story, you know, like you couldn't have a string 15 miles long because, <laughs> you know, rather, rather than get into the storyline, it just, uh -huh. just, it's a weird thing. But so, so how did you pull off within a space of an oh, hour with having off. no fear? I, gene. I found one. <laughs> you found one. Okay. I did not. No, that would have, that would have been rude not to listen to other people's poems. So. <laughs> So I did uh, find one called Antlers Alive, and I sent you to pick out the second one because okay. I, I did make some changes on it. Okay, sounds good. And this is as close as it gets for me. <laughs> well, I want It's so fascinating to me though how different um, people are. You know, like that whole thing about some people can't visualize like the apple. Have you seen that meme where it's like like if you could picture an apple, like some people see the word apple, and some people see like a black and white image of an app like a like a logo or like an emoji apple and some people see a real apple and like how you know and, and i don't have like a god gene definitely like I don't, I don't understand that experience and and i know there's so many different ways we experience the world that's i guess what makes poetry so fascinating too is that we all have well, a different way of seeing and thank yeah, god for I mean, that. you were talking about it earlier about um oh you know like this sense of um uh you know the beyond mm -hmm. and you know like you know, you, you 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 would you would be scared of it just being a materialistic world, and I'm going. That gives me comfort, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like we're just oh, incidentally, nice shirt. I was I just thinking the same yeah. thing, Dick. Really excellent fashion taste. I think uh, my squares are smaller, whatever that means. But... Yeah, well, you're younger, <laughs> whatever. I'm sure that's it. Well, anyway, this is this is Antlers Alive, and it's the closest thing. I just I searched for the word fear in my, in my uh, and I think this one fits the bill, and it has a little formal quality to it. Antlers Alive. I found the skull, the rack intact, deep in the hills up from the creek, bleached and stripped of all its flesh, all hollow eyes and bony cheeks. This is real, incidentally. And somehow still it felt alive. I set it on the garden bench to warn the others to leave alone all I have planted there, tomatoes, beans, and corn. One day it was gone from its shelf and left a shadow of osseous dust. The corn and beans and maters ravaged to the ground and crushed and fences all taken down. I spent the day salvaging the few plants left and mending fences, sorting curses from prayers about the contest between deer and me and growing things. As I walked back from the garden beds, I noted on the bench the intact racks, two empty sockets, twin wells of dread. I think there's definitely some creepiness in that poem, Dick. And uh, having seen your garden with all the elaborate things you have to go through to fight off those deer, I can relate like on multiple levels now, too. <laughs> the, uh... Well, it used to be just this skull mm -hmm. seemed to keep them out. And, and the whole notion of don't say the word deer in the garden. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's great. And everybody should know, you know, Dick has the most amazing garden. Um, you know, he made us, we stopped by and had some pizza. 
uh, with all the veggies on it. And it was literally the best meal I've ever had in my life. So, um, it, was, it was pretty good company, too. Well, I'm so glad that the skull worked is what I'm getting to. So, for a while. <laughs> for a while. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. I'm so glad you could come back. Thanks. Bye. Right, but it was Dick Westheimer with Antlers Alive. And that is going to wrap up the Rattlecast. So I knew it was going to be a long uh, open lines, and that's great. We had so many wonderful poems. Thanks, everybody, who shared them. Uh, hey, Kitty, you want to come back and, and tell us what you're thinking about for the prompt poem for next week? First, I'm thinking those poems were amazing, and I have to thank Brian O'Sullivan for making me laugh harder than I have ever laughed at any poem ever. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that definitely was. It was hard to, I mean, I have a mute button, fortunately, so there was, there was that if, saving me. If we'd been in person, I think I would have blown your microphone. Like, it is really <laughs> lucky that I was not there. Like, it was so loud over here, and it was, like, streaming tears. It was a whole thing. Yeah. So first of all, there's that. There <laughs> Especially, oh, we're supposed to be scary, and it was like the funniest poem we've had. <laughs> I love that. I think it's like the most wholesome thing ever. Like, everybody set out to be scary, and we were like, we're funny. We were like the Charlie Brown special or something. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, so for next week's prompt, what do you have? Uh, what do you have in mind? For next week, so what I was taken about with uh, with Christina's wonderful poems in part was that they all seem to kind of take place within the shadows in one way or another. I mean, I love her skate night poem and that like I was picturing it very shadowy and everything in the rink and then um, her other poems as well. So I know that we don't want to veer too Halloween-y, so mm -hmm. that's a concern, but it is fall and it's the season of shadows, I think, mm -hmm. more so even than winter, so... We're going to look at a poem. I don't have it written right in front of me, so you're going to have to help me out. Usually well, it's, a, it's, a, it's just very simply, it is mm -hmm. a poem that features a shadow. So that's how we phrase yeah. it. But I think a great thing to point out, because all of her poems is true, are sort of like viewing things from the shadows, you know? And like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it is a really interesting perspective. And, and a, mm -hmm. I don't know, and, and then the podcast too, for that matter. So it's an interesting uh, yeah. thing to note. Yeah. So it's a simple prompt. So I'm I'm looking for people to really go crazy with it. Like it also makes me think of a supermarket in California, how it's, um, you know, he talks about, uh, Ginsburg talks about Whitman as adding shade to shade, like a, a ghost in the shade and things like that. So there are a lot of different ways you can go with it. So go somewhere weird. Don't just give me a poem. It's like under a tree. Please. Only the shadow knows for sure. <laughs> Yeah, don't yeah, do that. That's so. but, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, it is a nice open-ended one to start off the month of November. And just a reminder how it works is, um, so this is for November, the submissions for the prompt poem of the month. So it's like, it's a November, what's it going to be, 5th? Yeah, November, no, November 6th episode. So um, so those will be for the prompt poem of the month of November, which we publish in December. And the mm -hmm. October ones, which include... The, the fear one and the last five, um, mm -hmm. all of them, are for the month of October, which we publish in <laughs> November, which, see, these months are so confusing. I'm trying to elaborate, but... It is a little confusing. They're due at the end of the month. There is a batch of them due tomorrow. Yeah, that's what right? I'm Right, we can to. say yeah. that. That's so, the important thing. <laughs> yeah, so if you've written one in the last, four, in the last five episodes, because there are five episodes in October, um, submit them by, uh, by tomorrow night at midnight. Um, and then, uh, and then you can have them considered by Katie for the prompt poem of the month. So thanks. Thanks Katie for doing that as always. It's really fun. 
And it's added a little yeah. lot to the show to the point where we really are. We're going to focus the open lines on prompt poems because it's just there's so many great ones. And it sort of gets this feel of everybody doing the same thing I really like. And uh, it's, it's really nice. And I think we're just going to stick the, um, you know, stick with the news poems at the beginning of the show. And then we'll move into the sort of community poems. I think that's a better feel. I like it. I love that we have enough great poems that we can do it. Yeah, we have like too many great poems even, which is a wonderful problem to have, right? <laughs> it really is. And I should say too, we accepted, um, you know, on the first month of the prompt poems, um, which was August, I think, which we published in September, <laughs> we published two additional poems that are going to be forthcoming in um, in Rattle in the f- mm-hmm. summer issue. So there was the mm-hmm. uh, the Wayfair one, which everyone's had to wait for, yeah. and then um, yeah. the Daffodils, speaking of yes. fun poems. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, we're just cranking out great poems. So it's a really wonderful project and a lot of fun. Yeah, it is wonderful. And, and that's great with picking them up for that print issue. Those those poems, I think everybody's really going to love them. I love them instantly. So I'm really excited. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Katie. It's always a pleasure. Uh, we'll see you later. And uh, thanks okay. for doing it all. Thank you for doing it all, Tim. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> all right. So it's Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor. Now, really quick, let's wrap up with the Saiku. And the Saiku for this week is the following, if I could click a link properly. The Saiku is uh, based on this story from the University of Bonn, or Bonn, I guess you'd say. Or, I don't know. I don't even know where it is. Denmark? Uh, anyway, here is the uh, story. And uh, it is the ego consciousness of the unfeathered fowl. A study by researchers at the universities of Bonn and Bochum suggests that roosters might recognize themselves in the mirror. And so, I mean, basically the story is, and, and always they, they have the text too big, but um, the, uh, you know, this, this idea of if you have like a self-awareness is something that they can test in animals. And usually what they do is they put a dot on the animal's head, like a bear or a dog or something, and then show it in the mirror. And if they scratch at that thing, the dot they'll be like oh it knows that the dot is on its head not on the other thing's head in the mirror so it knows it's like itself but you can't do that with a lot of animals that um uh don't like scratch at themselves and things like that Um, so it's hard a thing to study so what they did is they had a really clever thing Uh, so roosters apparently they have a special crow if a predator bird is around like a bird of prey and they only do it when there's other roosters around or other chickens around as well, because there's no point in calling out a warning if you're not if you don't have anybody to warn. And if you're calling out a warning with nobody there, then you're just like saying, hey, you know, hawk, I'm right here. Come eat me. So there's no benefit, but a big loss. So they wouldn't crow. They could be stay silent if there are no other roosters around. So what they did is they put a mirror up there and just the rooster, a mirror and a, and a hawk. And they saw see if the uh, if the roosters crowed out their warning, if there was a, a mirror of themselves present, and they mostly did not. They crowed much less their warning sign if there were there was a mirror um, present that was them versus another rooster. And so that shows possibly, unless there's some weird thing going on, that roosters have some sense of self. Actually, there's a way to figure that out. Pretty interesting uh, research from the University of Bonn. And here is our quick little Saiku based on that. A little bit of, I try to go for something Halloweenish and a vibe too. In the mirror, a chicken with its head cut off. 
In the mirror, a chicken with its head cut off. That is the Saiku for this week. That is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody. It's been a really wonderful one. I just love I look forward to the Halloween ones every year because I like, like I said, I like the creepy stuff. It's really fun to me as an entertainment. And uh, it was really fun doing this episode. Christina Callery was really cool with her Shadowland podcast. Everybody should check that out. And the great prop poems as well. Um, and spooky poems for the open lines. Now, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Jamaica Baldwin. Uh, Jamaica has been in Poetry Spawn. She's a wonderful poet. Um, her book coming out is Bone Language. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode. Rattlecast number 218 with your poems uh, that feature a shadow for the prompt. And again, we're only doing prompt poems from now on in the open lines. It's the prompt lines. So uh, looking forward to that. And uh, we'll have Jamaica Baldwin, Rattlecast 218, Monday, November 6th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great weekend in the meantime. And I will talk to you later. Good night.